Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about mix minus. What is mix minus? How does it work? Uh, so we're going to be answering your questions, explaining it a little bit, and hopefully demystifying. Uh, in the second hour. So we've got a great panel here, a audio heavy panel. So if you've got questions about audio, we probably have a pretty good chance of being able to answer it. So um, so go ahead and uh, throw those in. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? Andy Carluccio starts us off this morning from San Francisco, California. And his question is, how did the Zoom Zoom rooms test go in after hours yesterday? Did anyone test the quad multicam feature? Go ahead, Jeffrey. So I was uh, I was really working hard at it that I had to update my Zoom room. I haven't used it in like six months, so I had problem after problem. I ended up, I think uh, it really de depends on the computer because I think my, my machine wasn't, I, even though I had the connections, the cameras connected to it, it was only allowing me two external connections for that. So I might be wrong on how I set that up, but uh, that's where uh, that's where I was with it. And we should, what we should do is keep on banging on it until we figure out what it takes to do it and see what it looks like. So maybe uh, later today or tomorrow, we'll uh, we'll do it again. <laughs> see if we can't figure it out. We do have a Zoom room within office hours, so maybe we can use that one and, and see if we can't uh, figure out what uh, what's get, get to the bottom of it. Now, next question. Uh, well, up next is Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana. And he says, okay, I'm losing my patience with the AirPods Pro auto switching. What Bluetooth earbuds would the panel recommend for high fidelity audio with noise cancellation that isn't or aren't the AirPods Pro, but in the same to lower price range? Go ahead, Jason. Um, I am blanking on the name. The ones with the um, that automatically expand are pretty good. But um, I, I, I've got to say, if you go into the AirPods and you have the current firmware, you can actually just tell them, do not auto switch um, only if it's been you know, connected prior. And that should get rid of it, assuming everything's on a current firmware. So your, your best fix is free. Go ahead, Nigel. So at this time of fest festivals, when we have the airing of the grievances, I'd like to point at my JBLs. I'd like to point at my uh, uh, ultimate ears, which may have been the ones that you were just talking about, my yes. pros. And after seven years, Indiegogo has finally delivered my phasons, which are nothing like what I paid for seven years ago. And I would tell you not that, that they are all, <laughs> not at all. Not only that, Postal Service lost them for a while. So um, I would tell you that none of these work well. I, I, I suspect this is a Bluetooth uh, problem. And while we remain on variations of Bluetooth, this is going to be the way. My experience will tell you that the in-ears are pretty good. Uh, I think the pros are pretty good. My Maxes are pretty good. But I've got to the point where I have different, I have so many, I have different Bluetooth things for different devices because I am sick of the switching. And I, I just think the technology is way behind the use case at the moment. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I've been having trouble recently too. And mine were pretty solid for about a year. I've been using AirPod Pros and I, I move into different rooms and in different places and they've all auto-switched reasonably well. And I say reasonably because sometimes I have to go in and manually do it, but only once a week or so. The last two weeks I've had problem after problem and it's since I did my last system update to the latest operating system. I just think they're still trying to figure out how to manage multiple Bluetooth devices in Apple's uh, walled security garden and keep people from messing with your your equipment from the outside but it's been more difficult the last two weeks than i've had it for the last two years go ahead george 
I've been a fan of this brand uh, one more. Um, I think their stuff is really well designed, comfortable. The noise canceling is excellent. Um, and it's been my alternate to using my AirPod Pros. Um, and I'm, I've been very happy with these. So the one more aptly, poorly named Comfo Buds Pro um, are at, at $70 are a steal. Go ahead, Chris. Comfo Buds? Um, I, I think Nigel hit the nail on the head. I think... And, and it's a good use, it's a good experiment because he's tried all these different ones and he has trouble with all of them. I think if you, look at, if you look at the challenge of auto switching um, and you sat down and you tried to um, articulate the logic of how you want something to auto switch, ultimately at some point in that logic flow, it would be when I change my mind and I want something else, I want it to switch. And how is the computer or the thing ever going to know that you've changed your mind and want to switch to something else? And so I think that ultimately um, I avoid anything that's automatic because uh, quite often people like the people in this group, we're, we're at the fringe of you know most use cases. And how is, how is the computer ever going to figure that out? So uh, I, I recommend just... Don't use anything that's auto. <laughs> Go ahead, Harshid. So whenever you look at uh, headphones, there's a couple different components to, to uh, keep in mind. If you're going to use iPhone, you might have a W or H chip in the headphones, so the AirPods and such, the connectivity is going to be better for that reason. If you decide to go out of that realm, like the Comfo Buds are a good pair uh, of in-ear buds, and... Um, the Sony line, you have the Sony XM4 that I'm wearing currently, the Sony XM5. Uh, the Sony XM5 do well uh, more better than the 4s because of uh, call quality. So if you're trying to do call quality and cancel out the stuff around you, they do really well. If you're looking for high fidelity sound quality, I would uh, push you towards the Sennheiser Momentum 4s as far as cans go. And even their true, uh, true I think they're on True Buds 3 third version they're good as well but that's where you're going to get your sound quality bear dynamics or some of these other ones that's where the sound quality lies and then you could always try to get a uh, wireless pack and then try to connect to the wireless pack and then just put in any earbuds if they're wired and you might have a better sound quality out of those versus trying to fight with the auto switching or multi-pairing and again just always to look under settings to make sure that multi-pairing just keep it one by one i try to avoid having multi-pair on because then you also do suffer from a uh, sound quality in, in the codex so for android ldac is what i'm using currently with my bluetooth setup but for iphones you're just going to be using aac yeah, like Nigel, I have different headphones for different things. My easy, easy ones that are just going to, ironically, the easy ones that I use are going to be AirPod Pros. Um, when I care about the music, I use the UE Fits, the Ultimate Ear Fits. I think that the, the audio is better than the in-ear, uh, any of the in-ear Apple solutions. I use the OpenCom uh, from Shox um, for the, uh, uh, when I'm talking to people. So if I, if I care about a call, I'm going to use that because it's got a boom. <laughs> and the boom... It turns out distance makes a big difference, you know, and that couple inches really impacts the quality and you get, you just hear a lot less of whatever I'm doing. Um, so, so usually if I'm, um, you know, moving around or whatever, I want to use the, the, those, um, the real problem with the Bluetooth, the non-Apple Bluetooth without the W1 chip is that they, um, they don't, they, when you pick up the phone, 
it go automatically goes back to the phone audio. It will not just go to the Bluetooth headset. At least for me, I can't get it to do that. And so basically, I'm listening to music. Someone calls, and when I answer, it goes back to the phone. I have to manually select that that uh, earpiece again, which drives me crazy. The only one it doesn't do that with is the Apple products. And uh, conspiracy theorists would say that that's probably inappropriate <laughs> to have it only be the Apple products. But I think it has to do with the W1 chip. Uh, that's there or the U is it the U1 chip or W1 chip anyway the the chip that's in there that allows it to pair uh, but I, otherwise I agree with everybody that said just turn off all the auto switching because it's a disaster uh, next question Pla Luke Lopez Waterman in Norfolk Virginia comes up to us next time with is there anyone in the community that has the FR7 that had attempted to control it via Isadora or Universe I don't think anybody's done that yet because I don't think they uh, Sony just released it and Sony tends to be a little slow on providing uh, a, you know any kind of external control. Uh, but I think that what you could do is find a way to get to the Visca. So the Visca uh, you know, interaction should give you some control. I don't know if it'll give you all the controls that the camera has, but I think that through the Visca, Visca protocol, you should be able to control those, uh, those cameras and zoom focus, point them. The coloring um, and some of the finer details may not be available to you in that protocol, but, but most of it should be. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll have one to test on, on in January. So uh, we'll have one kind of as a lab product. We can even set it up so that you can play with it and see if you can't control it. So, um, so stay tuned for that. Uh, next question. Siamantan Gurgaon India says, which application would you recommend for backing up multiple Macs running Ventura, Chronosync or Carbon Copy Cloner or any other? Thanks. Go ahead, Jesse. Uh, we use Chronosync and it works pretty well. Yeah, go ahead, Nigel. If you don't have that many and you want to keep it simple, Time Machine is a very effective way to back up individual machines and recover them and the data that I seem to delete all the time. Hi, good Tom. I use Time Machine, and the real trick is if you're doing multiple machines, make sure you go to multiple target volumes. Jason? For me, the reigning champion has always been and still is super duper. There were about uh, six weeks when it didn't work with the Apple Silicon. They have completely ironed that out, and it now works with current Ventura, and it can do snapshot backups, which is super useful. I'll give you the link in Mukana. Next question. From Tlaluk Lopez-Waterman in Norfolk, Virginia, he's back with one. Considering PTZ, Pantel Zoom options, what's the most paintable option? Are there PTZ units that can be painted or color corrected live? Uh, most of them can be color corrected. It's just a question of how good the quality is of the color correction tools. Uh, almost none of the PTZs themselves would do a particularly good job of it. Um, I think that even the Sony, the new Sony you can load LUTs to it, but it doesn't sound like it has a lot of paint options. Um, they do have basic, uh, a lot of them might, Sony's will have like a red minus green and blue. And if you've done this for a long time, it'll make sense, but it won't look anything like a, a regular, you know, turnkey um, color correction at this point. Um, the best way to do that is to put real cameras on telemetrics heads or or Ross heads or or other things like that that are um, that you can have a real camera that has real painting on them. So usually if we need to do that kind of fine quality, we're putting real cameras on on mechanic on PTZ heads and not using the PTZ cameras themselves. Again, there are some color correction that you can absolutely do, but you can't really shade them the way you would have them, the way you would think about shading them for a, a real professional output. Um, so there is shading, like just aperture shading that's within most of the Sony and Panasonic controllers. So you can do some of that, 
but you just don't have as much fine control. Um, the, the most control that you'll have in a built-in one, in my experience, is the Panasonic 15160 with uh, the larger Panasonic control uh, surface. Um, you have a fair bit more control than you would have in the other other um, ones that, from my experience so far. Next question. Next one comes from Ray Franklin in Mount Dora, and Ray says, the dedicated office hours volunteers should include new skills learned with the epic 1K event, the Kila Show. Uh, how best to add these skills to LinkedIn or personal resumes? I don't, I don't really know. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a link. I mean, I'm a, I have a LinkedIn account, but I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't do all the uh, little tricks with it. Hashi. So to take a little bit of what uh, Ray's asking here, what I've kind of learned from us here and just from the 1000 show and everything else is how to keep everything tighter and tighter every single time. And, when we practice and practice, things get tighter. So the Okilo show, for example, was so tight with all the music, everything coming in, coming out. And I think uh, for shows that I have, I run uh, with mm -hmm. iBug, Android Inside and stuff, I've taken a lot of that to make sure that everything, all the processes are there and then yeah. to tighten up after that. I think that when it comes to actually um, codifying it or putting it on something, I mean, I have been a strong proponent for most of my life that it matters who you know, not really what's what's what, what piece of paper you have or what's on LinkedIn. Um, you know, really where where value comes and where you end up getting the next job or the next thing is people that you're working with. You know, and so being on the teams makes a difference. Um, putting things on paper that said you were on the team is probably as much less impact. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think that uh, Alex is exactly right about that. It's it's that combination of having expertise, but having demonstrated expertise. You can, of course, with something like the Kila Show, grab a copy of your credit at the end of it and just keep that around. And if you want to put it on a resume, it's going to show that at least you were there and did something yeah. in the area you're looking for work in. But um, you know, the learning is its own reward in a lot of this kind of stuff. As crews get bigger and more complex, there are going to be people looking for these kind of skills because the world is moving more and more virtual. So I would highly suggest that if you're at all interested in this, Office Hours provides an amazing opportunity to learn things that most of us had to really scrabble hard to, to learn in the old days. Yeah. And, and I think, again, I think it's going to be the people who there's going to be, there are already a lot of people who are doing this kind of work in the industry. And some of them are sprinkled through a lot of these teams. And, um, you know, a lot of people have ended up in some companies and partnered and built companies together um, from this. And where you get that is from actually doing it and being part of it and being a, a participant in it. It's no one's really asking for resumes. They can see what you did, you know, like because they were working with you. And that's the best way to know how someone operates inside of production is to see them actually in action. Uh, next question. Uh, Tlaluk is back again from Norfolk with Does Companion work with the Stream Deck Plus yet? I ordered one and I'm on a mission to figure a way to control moving lights on ETC Nomad with it. I go, Jason. I love your mission. I will put a link in uh, Mukana, but since the public 2.4.0 version, um, it should be supported. And if it that doesn't work for any reason, um, it's still backup full MIDI control. So you can always just graft a MIDI um, controller onto it and it'll work. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Up next, I'm looking for a Blackmagic 6K for Zoom. Which model and lens do you suggest? Uh, go ahead, Chris. Can't hear you, Chris. You muted. Sorry. Uh, the one I would use, or the one I am using, is this one. It's the uh, Sigma 
Let me see. What is the actual model on it? It is, uh, it's like a six Sigma 18 to 30 to 35. It says on there. Yeah. So, um, uh, it looks good. It works good. It's got a good range on the length. I will say though, that one of the things that you, that you kind of, that you could take advantage of with certain lenses is the ability to remotely zoom it. This does not have the ability to remotely zoom it. There's not a lot of uh, lenses that do. That might be a feature you want to look for. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Uh, the 24 to 70, uh, 2.8 all the way through the second generation with a switch lock from Canon is my go-to, and I adore it. Go ahead, Nigel. Same as Jason just said, I also have the 1.250 millimeter, which I really love, but uh, it doesn't quite work for this setup. Go ahead, Jesse. Uh, if you're just using the camera for a zoom, you could probably get away with the uh, Generation 2 model, not the Pro. If you're going to be going out and shooting in the sunlight a lot, consider getting the Pro for those ND filters. And that Sigma 18-35 to is a really solid neutral lens. You're good, uh, Tom. I guess the tiebreaker is the Canon 2470 F2.8 L2. Yeah, uh, that's what we've. That's, that's the standard one that we use. Uh, we've got a bunch of these 6Ks, and the 24 to 70 we found had just a little bit more reach. Um, that uh, the, the 16 to 35 we we've used that in the past as well. The problem is a lot of times we ended up at the end of the lens, so we don't use much near the 16. We ended up using a lot near 30, and then sometimes one at 40, and didn't have it. So we found that we weren't going wider than 24. So as a result, we moved to the 24 to 70. Sigma makes one at 2.8 as well. It's just a little softer than the Canon, but I don't know if you'd notice it in Zoom. But but it's uh, but that's half. It's half the cost um, is the Sigma, um, and so but the um, but you have the Sigma set 24 to 70 or the Canon L series, which is the the best the best one that we've used um, for that. But it's a lot more expensive. Uh, next question. Andre Dalle in Berlin says, having a hybrid event with meeting for panelists, a webinar for attendees, and on-site guests, what would be the best way to integrate Mentimeter for all three groups of audiences? The questions and results should be shown for all participants. And I'm not familiar with Mentimeter. Is this, a, uh, is this kind of an audience tool? Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, Mentimeter is uh, an audience participant participation but we use it quite a lot not on zoom but actually in meetings to try and make it more interesting you throw up a qr code and you can vote if you subscribe you can tailor it otherwise it's a pretty easy thing to do and you can either show the voting as it comes in or the voting afterwards and would you just give it to everybody have everybody download it personally you know whether they're online or, or in the room yeah, what we do is, we, in fact, we're doing it at an event in a couple of weeks. I have the whole sales team, and we're doing some fun stuff to try and make being face-to-face -face easier. And uh, there's a QR code on the center of every table, and there's a whole quiz show thing going on, and you get to vote who gave the better answer. And so they snap the QR code. It takes them to a, a web page. They vote, and that's it. It's amazing. I, I Every time I think about QR, I build a lot of QR codes for, for, for to bring audiences in. And I'm always just amazed that it lasted for so long and no one used it until it was in the Apple camera. <laughs> as soon as they put it in the Apple camera, uh, it, it was, it was the, uh, it just completely shifted. Go ahead, Bill. On one of my shows on Thursday, we used that to form the word cloud. I think Noah uh, had picked that as, uh, or Josh had picked that as mm -hmm. the back end thing. And it worked really well. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Am I the only one that noticed that QR codes really took off with COVID and rest and restaurants and menus? It might've been restaurants and menus. What happened also was that Apple put it in the camera, which meant that you didn't have to download a separate app to, to use when, it. Do, do you know when they did it, that? It, was, it wasn't that 
long ago. I don't know exactly what the date is. COVID? It was, I think it was before COVID, but not by much. And it, all, oftentimes these technologies take a little time to spin up. Go ahead, uh, Jeff. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it was it was uh, earlier than that. Um, I also, uh, time in advertising, uh, way ahead of my time, it reminds me of the uh, QCAT, if anyone remembers that from way, way back. But it was the same kind of thing. We were putting it in, in ads, in, in magazines, and it had very little use because it was not integrated into the phones. But once both of them, uh, Apple as well as uh, Android phones, came with the ability natively to scan it where people didn't have to know what to do. They could essentially almost just point their phone at it and it would work. That's when it really took off. And certainly, I, I would agree, the use of menus and, and uh, other type of signage with COVID certainly helped as well. 2017, by the way. So a couple of years before COVID. Um, it, it, uh, um, and, and literally the article that I just found while we were talking about it said, did Apple uh, resurrect the QR code? I mean, it was so seen as dead that, that no one was using it. No one ever, you never, never saw a QR code. It had been around since the nineties, you know, um, you know, so we, I remember thinking about it walking, you know, I was, I remember having my iPhone and walking, walking around San Francisco, just going, I just want to scan, scan things and just have it, give it to me. Uh, this is in 2007 or eight. And, uh, and thinking, I can't believe this is, you, you can't use your phone for this. And um, it took another 10 years before they, added it. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, we were using it for, we've been using it for years to promote shows. We'd put the QR code on paper posters that we'd put up around town. Um, but we would always use, you know, the only thing I could find to generate it were online things. You mentioned, uh, Alex, you I, mentioned something yesterday about being able to generate your own QR code. Yeah, I use QR Factory. So, um, I, and the reason I use it, I will never, I mean, I have in the past. So I said, I, I, it's not that I have never, but I will never again use an online tool to build a QR code because what they do is they put another URL in the middle so that if you don't keep paying them a subscription, your URL stops working. So, um, yeah, so, so you need to, it's like a, it, it's definitely a, a little scam. And so I use QR Factory. It doesn't have all the features that some of the online ones do, but, um, but it's it's pretty good. It's not very expensive on the Mac. Um, and there's there's ones on the PC as well, but I, I use that one. Um, there's the, we could probably do, a, we, we, Josh, if you're listening or someone puts it in the second hour, we should talk about QR codes because they're, they're, they're really useful for online events, for in-person events. It's probably a good Monday or Friday conversation. So um, let's, let's think about QR codes. We can talk about this for quite some time, or I can at least. Next question. Bob Sturtevant, San Antonio's back. Recently updated my Stream Deck software. All of the font sizes for my profiles reverted back to the smallest font. Has this happened to anyone else? Go ahead, Chris. Uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, when I when something I got the Stream Deck Pro, Pro Plus Ultra, whatever it is, uh, and then I had to update the software and not everything changed. I will say that um, the. Um, the amount with which they change things, I find to be just annoying enough. I mean, I still use it, but I, I, I used to keep everything really tidy in my Stream Deck buttons, and I've just sort of given up on it. It's like, I make it whatever you want because you're going to change it if I change it anyway. So I find it go, annoying. Go ahead, Jason. 
Um, there is a manifest JSON file for every single um, plugin, and you can actually just go in and do a quick find and replace. That'll fix it um, very quickly and easily. Uh, that's, I think, the, the best way to fix this. And for those of you that don't know, um, 6.0.2, the app um, for Stream Deck, was just updated. You no longer need Rosetta, and it runs natively on Apple Silicon. And it'll break everything you just had. <laughs> oh, it'll absolutely break everything. Just use <laughs> Companion with a Raspberry Pi. That's how I do it. Yeah. But I was answering the question, so, you know. <laughs> Jeffrey. Yeah, the big thing is to export your profiles. And then there's always a folder that you can copy out of. So if something goes, because I had my Stream Deck, uh, all of a sudden it, it lost half of the buttons you know, on there. So I reverted back to that folder. In Windows, it's easy. I'm not sure where it is in Mac, but it's under the users in in, uh, in Windows, and you just in copy library the folder users. Out. Yeah, so you copy the the folder out and then uh, bring it back in when it comes back in. The other thing is you might want to look at your font because your font might have gotten corrupted, uh, which is why the si the size is different. Next question, Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach is up next. Like my office, some panelists are in rooms that look echoey. Yet they're not. Can you talk about your specific acoustic treatment? Unlike my VO booth, which sounds great, I'm trying to stick with aesthetically pleasing solutions for my office. Oh, good, George. Well, you know, a lot of times it's not what everybody sees. It's actually what you're hearing, right? So, you know, this is not a good example because I'm in a cramped space. What you see behind me is very close. So that that's actually a booth behind this painting. Um, but the rest of the room, the secret is, drum roll, clutter. <laughs> <The more cl> <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, we get paid off for being, being right. you know, just piling stuff up around ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> the more cluttered the room, the better off you are because all that clutter uh, uh, creates diffusion. The sound scatters in a billion directions, and um, that's part of the equation. But you also do, of course, need absorption. And in my case, I do have acoustical panels, not that many, but. There's one over towards my left. There's a drapery on the window. There's one right above the monitors. There's one over my head. There's a closet to my right, which has got a lot of clothes with the door open on purpose. So that's another absorbing thing. There's a rug on the floor. And like I said, right off frame over here is a huge shelving unit full of a million tchotchkes objects and boxes. That's part of the... So it's a it's an always a combination of practical things to me and then you know purpose made things just like in film sets it's practical lighting and then you know the everything else so i feel that's it's, it's just a combination of a lot of things just try not to have it all on camera go ahead jeff so my room's pretty pretty large for it's a, what we call in the south a frog a finished room over garage so i've got about 20 feet front to back about 10 feet wide fairly eight foot ceilings, low ceilings, and they actually come in at a 45. So I've got walls fairly close to me there, but I've started investing in acoustic panels and I've got mine from a place called ATS Acoustics and they custom build or they build panels in standard sizes and use the the, the only fabric, which is Guilford of Maine for studio fabric. And uh, so it's over uh, linear fiberglass and they make them in a bunch of different sizes. I'll drop a link for Big that fan. in Mukana. Big fan. And, uh, rugs on the floor and I'm continually adding more clutter. Go ahead, Mitchell. Jeff, you're looking for something that looks pretty and does the job. I use this, it's called Sound Channels. And if you want choice, I got your choice. All <laughs> kinds of uh, colors and yeah. sizes. 
And if you wanna see what the room looks like when you use it, I can pop up here and show you. I have it on every wall that cuts down the, the flutter very well. And then to take it a step further, I'm using the Sonics uh, panels in my acoustic drop ceiling, and they do a great job of cutting it down. So it's not so much that they're um, sucking up sound, they're cutting back the flutter. And the, it's the flutter that causes that annoying room sound that goes along Is that with a your mic. Sound? Flutter? Um, uh, yeah. Go, Jesse. Um, our acoustic treatment comes in two stages. The first is getting the mic about three to six inches away from the voice, and that will work wonders. If you don't have that mic in close, you'll you'll notice a huge difference when you finally move it in. And then paneling, of course. Yeah, and um, <laughs> well, you know, the, the key is to design it all. So if you if if you want to see what mine looks like, it doesn't look exactly like this. This was taken while I was still building it, but uh, uh, this gives you a sense of what mine what what I'm actually looking at when you when you see mine. Uh, and it's un this mic is unusable without this. And so, the really big light source that you have here, and then this is all maker pipe. So this is all using a little. Um, this is just EMT rail. And so I built a kind of a cage in that EMT, EMT which I also built a cage here with the EMT. Um, and, uh, anyway, so you, you get kind of a sense of it's all soft, except, except the one wall that you see, which is cluttered. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, that's the key to the, that's oh, one can of I the add one more quickie thing? Like, I, I think it's a great, I'm so glad you showed that Alex, because mm -hmm. what that's showing you, I always explain acoustics to people that are more visual, right? Visual right. is visual is all about light. And sound is all about acoustics. And so you can see here, Alex put as much effort into, or maybe even more, uh, into dealing with the acoustic issue and not ignoring it because it does take a, a, sometimes a tremendous effort to control it. But the better your acoustics, the better the sound, the better lighting, the better the image. Yeah, I mean, it's it just, I've done so much of this for so long that you just get super touchy about having it be something, having hearing anything. And I found that, the, the and it's, and the moving blankets are purposefully not uh, just as a as a note they're purposely not pulled taut you know they're they're kind of loose and they're kind of rolling around I've thought about putting in you know things that are more you know full like full fullness uh, curtains that kind of thing that might look nicer um, but would suck up a lot yeah go ahead Jeff uh, and maybe not now but. Uh... You didn't get, I know you were rebuilding the office, which looks great. Uh, you didn't make it for the, the ruthless review of the behind the scenes. So maybe we can schedule it because I'd love to yeah. go through that in more detail and hear about how you're dealing with uh, airflow and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't need to worry about too much. Air, I have too much airflow, so it's usually not a problem. But I have a, I have, I have a door to the outside world on the on the other side of the, of the thing. So I just open it up, cool it down, and then go. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we can definitely cover it again. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in VR, Florida. He says, can you suggest a foam windscreen for a Samson Go mic? Thanks. Go ahead, George. Let's see. Uh, well, it's a really tiny microphone, right? So I was looking at it. Here's a, here's a shot of how tiny this microphone actually is. If I can do this. You see how small it is? <laughs> it's really tight. <laughs> so I was looking around and I think what your best bet is to just get a pencil microphone windscreen, which looks something uh, like uh, this, um, you know, because a pencil mic is probably, <laughs> if you take that flat mic and turn it into a cylinder, um, probably one of these would stretch over top that. Um, so that might be the, the most practical thing to try. Otherwise I would have to ask why, do you need a windscreen on that mic? Are you using it outside or are you using it like 
are you putting it right in front of your mouth? I don't know why you would want a windscreen on it, but just there's a possible solution. Good, Courtney. If you're just looking for a pop filter, uh, just take a regular foam windscreen off of a, for a large diaphragm cardioid and squish it down and slide it over that because the more space between the foam and the face of the mic, the better it is at eliminating pops. It -hmm. won't be a very good windscreen because wind can get underneath the bottom of it, but it'd make an effective pop screen if you just flatten it out and uh, find one that's large enough diameter to slide over the whole thing. You got Mitchell? That's a great little microphone for 30 bucks, and it's about the size of a Zippo. The only problem that it has is that it does like to get uh, plosives, and you've got to put the foam on it. The problem is if you buy an expensive foam screen, it's going to cost almost as much as the microphone. I agree, Jeffrey. <laughs> and Courtney made a good point. It, it, there's a difference between a windscreen and a pop filter. Are you, If you're looking for a pop filter, just buy a pop filter because that'll work perfect. If you really do need a windscreen, you can take one of those windscreens, actually take a scissors to the back of it, and then uh, close it up and uh, glue it, super glue it together, and then you'll have something to your size. Next question. Next one comes to us from Richard Bowman in Defiance, Ohio. And Richard asks, so this pile USB mic just popped up as an Amazon suggestion. And he has a link there. Would it be any better or worse than the Behringer Bigfoot? Go ahead, George. Well, I, I mean, you can hate my answer, but I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you this for what? Well, yeah, the, the, the most popular answer to almost everybody's uh, questions. Always, it depends. It depends on what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I looked at it and I, ordered it but um and then i realized the shipping is going to come when i'm not here so i canceled the order but for 20 bucks it comes with a shock mount a case and a windscreen and a desk mount and any one of those things is worth more than 20 dollars. so even if the mic is total uh caca it uh i think it would be uh you know pretty good investment and who knows you know with cheap mic capsules you know that are in the uh behringer bigfoot uh clone uh is you know are, are workable for cardioid condensers so it might be okay for 20 bucks for a pile and a usb mic to boot usb but interface jeffrey. as well jeffrey so the behringer bigfoot is actually comparable more to the uh, blue yeti because it has the uh, dual uh dual condensers in there and of course you can you can go through a, as a cardioid microphone or you could do a whole room uh, or stereo mode on there if you wanted to the pile one uh, that I've, I've tested pile microphones similar to that. I don't know that specific model, but uh, one thing that you want to watch out for is make sure that it, and it looks like it's a metal casing, but if it does have a plastic casing, just send it right back. Uh, the, sh the shock mount is a good thing. Some of them actually come with a scissor arm rather than the desk mount because I, I saw a couple back and forth. And I watched one, one person actually put a scissor arm on a glass table, which made, and this is like the exposed spring scissor mount, which made absolutely no sense because I was just going to feed back uh, easily with, with Echo. But uh, just make sure that the, if you have uh, the desktop mount that you have it on, probably on top of a, like a piece of cloth or something like that. So it doesn't do a lot of table transfer. And then also test it all out because I've seen a couple people just uh, see the microphone fall apart. It is a, the quality control on a lot of that stuff is hit or miss. So you, you could buy one and it work perfectly for the end of life. And then you buy the next one and just fall apart in your hands. So just keep that in mind when you're purchasing any of those microphones. You go ahead, Jeff. I'll just volunteer Courtney, uh, if he remembers, but Courtney found this really awesome uh, foam 
that he's using for a, a mic shock mount that that would potentially help with issues like that with the table, Courtney, if you have it handy. Uh, <laughs> I do have it handy, but it's stuck onto my mic arm right here. It's uh, I'll put it. I'll, I'll look it up and and stick it in the uh, chat. It's a weather stripping foam. It's foam neoprene uh, with fairly. Uh, very, very flexible and very, very absorbent. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I would. Uh, I, I hate to mention the blindingly obvious here, so forgive me. Um, that's at twenty dollars. That's a pretty low price for a microphone. Uh, for an unknown microphone, it's way too high. Even a dollar is too much for a mic that doesn't work. So you're so close to the price of a Bigfoot, which is selling for like thirty bucks right now. Why not just jump to thirty? I mean, a dollar might be worth a broken mic. I mean, you know, you could, it'd be a good prop. You know, you, you, I, I, I think you're, I, I think a dollar might be, you could throw a dollar in there. Go ahead, Courtney. Come on, Mitch. Go ahead, I Courtney. mean, look at the case. You get a case, you get a stand, <laughs> you get a shock mount, you get a pop filter, mm, okay. you get a windscreen, you know. Yeah. You know what? That's you could buy that. Bucks. You could buy that microphone and use that windscreen on the Samsung uh, Go yeah. that we were just talking about. Yeah, exactly. Much exactly. That's the point. Yeah, there we go. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer of Vier Florida is back with this. When live streaming directly from Zoom, is it possible to stop Zoom from opening the live stream URL when you start streaming? Zoom hosts find the audio feedback confusing. Thanks. Go, Jason. So depending upon what you mean by the um, the feedback that is confusing people, I would say your best bet here is to invest in a broadcast machine with a you know a dedicated playout that has nothing to do at all with the Zoom machine itself. Yeah. So the, the the issue though is that this has bedeviled a lot of people for a very long time. Is that something opens up underneath it, or you start a stream and it's sitting in a window underneath, and suddenly you hear it offset, you know, coming in. That's what that's what he's asking about. Oh, streaming with Zoom. I see. So if you hit stream with Zoom, it automatically opens the window that you're streaming to, and the reason it does that is because otherwise, a lot of people have trouble figuring out where it went. <laughs> so it's, so it's it's a pretty important feature. I would say that I would rather do in this case. I'd rather say wetware training is more important than software. I mean, wetware development is better than software development. Wetware being teaching the person to to turn it off when they start the stream, um, as opposed to um, doing that. And and again, that comes into how you start your stream. You'll notice that our stream starts five minutes before the show starts with a countdown clock to tell you that it's coming. That gives us time to settle, you know. And so we don't, you know, what you want to try to avoid if you can is doing this thing where we're going to start live and then we're going to immediately just jump into the show. I understand the reason for that a lot of times is in streaming, especially if you don't do it very often and the audience isn't trained, you may lose a lot of audience if you let it sit for a while. So you've got to figure out what you put in there. Countdown clock is kind of a happy medium of uh, it's not too hard and um, and we can kind of put it together. You could also do, we could do an open when we had news. We If we did that, we'd probably have more viewers, <laughs> a lot more viewers right at the top of the hour. Um, but those are the kind of things you want to kind of think about. Um, remember also when you start streaming to a service like YouTube, not ever, not all the followers here get to see it at the very beginning. It it basically propagates across all of them in three to five minutes. So so it's you know you oftentimes having some kind of soft start lets the audience kind of collate as well. So those are things to kind of consider. But I would I would I'd be very careful about turning that even if even if there was a tool there that let you turn it off. Maybe you put it in the admin. You know. Zoom just puts everything on the web page. Like there's an admin page and then there's a meeting page. <laughs> I put it on the new check mark that says don't show live stream, but I would be very careful about doing that. Next question. Next one comes from Eduardo Augustine in Panama. He says, I'm trying to upgrade my rig to a sports focus. And he specifically notes American football. What camera suggestion in a low budget wallet? 
Go, Jesse. I'm not going to push you into any corner with one single camera suggestion, but I would start looking at Sony's because they have a lot of really good um, autofocus features. And once you're in the ecosystem, you can be upgrading that camera and keeping your lenses. You go, Bill. Yeah, football is a particularly difficult sport because it starts out as a pattern shot. You want to see where the ends are going. You want to see where the backfield is in motion or not. And you still want to keep the quarterback kind of in the mix of everybody running these patterns. But then the best coverage tries to isolate as the play develops closer. So I would suggest you're going to look for maybe a shoulder mount camera that has a really solid zoom lens uh, that can get you from a wide kind of more establishing shot and then move your audience closer to where the play is developing, where the ball ends up going and and how to follow it along and try to get up high because it's really hard to shoot football from the sidelines. Go Jesse. I'm, I'm sorry, Jason. So um, for small and inexpensive, um, you cannot beat Sony. Um, the FDR AX53 is an amazing, tiny, self-stabilized 4K camera that um, that kind of is is one of my favorite little like just does it type type digs. Yeah, the what I will say the hard part with American football as opposed to European football or global football other than American football is that uh, it's pretty hard to shoot. I mean, most, you can watch a soccer, a soccer game and what we Americans call soccer um, as a wide shot a lot of the time. They do do it a lot of the time. In football, you really tend to want to get close up on a lot of different things that are going on. If you only have one camera, it gets, you do end up, as Bill said, up high trying to capture the whole field. And so that's the thing you have to kind of decide. Are you trying to do multiple cameras or are you just going to do one camera to, camera, to, to, show, this, to show the event? It's just a very hard game because it can zigzag into so many different places so quickly um, that it it is a it's a pretty hard game to shoot with a long lens um, unless you unless that long lens is part of a larger package. So that's the thing to kind of think about there. Next question. Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota is up next. When I hook up my monitor to my ATEM Mini, there's an error in what I'm guessing is the frame rate. How can I fix that so I can get the monitor out? Good, Jason. Most consumer monitors want an even integer for a frame rate, 30p, 60p. My guess is that your camera or and or your switcher are in a um, are in a drop 2997, um, you know 2394. Um, but long story short, if you're going to be able to fix this easily, start by setting your um, start by setting your frame rate in the switcher and see if that helps. And uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, exactly right. And if if uh, if it's a TV that you're using as a monitor, it's usually it usually is 1080i. So you might try 1080i rather than a uh, progressive frame rate because that might work. Uh, so change the uh, output frame rate on your ATEM. Next question. Next question comes from Andy Dalle in Berlin. How can I get more than five virtual cables into my machine? With VB Audio, you can get one cable for free, purchase an additional four cables. But how do I get even more? I would need at least six virtual cables. I'll go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, that's going to be tough without, because, uh, yeah, that's that's by design for a VB cable. Um, so I would suggest if you really need to get the sixth one in there, uh, you, you can put in another sound card and then bring the, the audio in that way or use something like NDI. Um, if you want to go with the Dante route, of course, that's going to cost you. Uh, so you can uh, try that and then bring it from another computer. So you could actually have VB cable on a second computer and then you'd have another five connections and then you could port that in. 
via via something like NDI or something like that. Yeah, I I found it odd. I, I did look at the website um, <laughs> and was going through it and I found it odd that it is limited to five. Like it seemed like a very artificial, like a weird limit. And it seems to be across a lot of their products. I wonder if it's something in the US. Um, because it just it doesn't it, it's an odd thing to have it be limited to everything. There's no way to upgrade. It, it doesn't seem to be on any of their products past five. You know, go ahead, Marty. Well, so the 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 VB cable is is great for a one to one connection. Um, you know, if you need to go one output to one input in another app, but if you're if you're trying to route audio um, to an app from a couple of different places, the you know use something like the potato product which has uh three different virtual outputs three different virtual mix buses that you can then route to an application and so you know if unless you're doing one-to-one -one routing uh just use the virtual buses i uh, go ahead jeffrey yeah, and with the five uh five ports i, I was wondering if that was uh surround sound trying to bring that in that way rather so. than you know because that makes sense with five yeah and I, I, I yeah no and surround would be six technically like <laughs> you need six to start with that's the that's table stakes so go ahead jeff i would think a loop back from rogue amoeba uh should probably be well, this is, he's on a pc and loop backs on a mac that's he's a, on a pc no, oh sorry, if it's surround though if it's around, though, the um, you can configure each of the inputs and outputs to handle multiple right. tracks of audio. Right. So you do, you don't need to handle them separately. Right. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Jack asks, "Anyone have experience with the OWC Flex One U4?" And he's got a link there for it. Looks like a nice direct attached storage option rather than a network attached storage. Go, ahead, Jason. Um. I've dealt with just about every OWC storage thing ever, except for this one. And, um, you know, like, if you're after fit and finish, Alex has them too. You, you've got the, you know, the passively cooled one that's stupidly fast. And, um, yeah, I, I think that you can't go wrong if this is the form factor you're after. Good, Jeff. This thing looks really cool, uh, especially for, uh, like an avid chassis for Pro Tools, but, uh, I would wait to see if you need the PCI slot that's in it, I would wait to see if your particular card is uh, proved compatible with this device and your OS. Wait, it has a PCI slot? PCI slot and four bays for three and a half, two and a half, or uh, Sorry. You know, that, that collection of, uh, of letters that is the little S SSD drive. Sorry, I, I was I was interested in it. <laughs> was interested in it until until I found out a PCI slot, and then I was really interested. Uh, yeah, because yeah, this very, would do what very cool. This is storage plus you could theoretically put what we're using our sonnets for. You know, you could just have a storage, and then and what what's interesting about that? Oh man, the smoke you're smelling. Get my my wallet caught fire. Um, you know, so the uh, the. Because this, what you could do here is if you had like a playout system, you could use this where you're loading a bunch of stuff into it and you have a, a deck link card, you know, in it that is key fill out and you could have, oh, that's, that's really pretty. Um, yeah, go ahead, John. Is somebody at OWC watching our show or something, Alex? 
they're not. They're not. They should. But I, we 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 like we generally like we generally assume that OWC stuff is pretty good. But I didn't realize that it had a card. It has a card in it because uh, we you know we you, for a rack mountable anyway. Um, Jeff, Sam, you out there? So the next version needs to be two rack space and hold four drives on the left, PCI card in the back, and a Mac Studio <laughs> on the right. Mac Studio or even Mac Mini. A Mac Mini with a Mac Mini with this would be oh boy. Anyway, all right, uh, next question. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas, up next. The next breakthrough to take the AI world from uh, by storm might be 3D model generators. This week, OpenAI open-sourced Point E, a machine learning system that creates a 3D object given a text prompt. Comment? Yeah, I, I, yeah. Pretty exciting. <laughs> Go ahead, John. Alex, Alex already mentioned that that they were doing output out of Maya, and I saw another guy that was doing that was using it for for three D modeling as well. So it's coming. Well, and and what I was talking about specifically wasn't even that it was it was doing um, it was building a three D model. What I was talking to the other day was the fact that it was exporting the model. Like literally, you could um, uh, you know export a three D model from. Um, uh, you know, like it, you're not, it's not generated. It, in my case, it wasn't generating the model. It was actually, um, uh, it was, it was not generating the model, but it was actually exporting it, like t- exporting FBX of a model that they created. Point E, which came out yesterday, um, allows you to basically type in words and get a model, <laughs> a 3D model. From what I've seen so far, I'm not a very good 3D model. I mean, it's it's not something that you would use, but we have to remember that there's a lot of people that saw two, you know, three twenty by two forty video and realized where it was going to go, which is where we're at now. So this is the three forty by maybe the one sixty by one twenty uh, video of three D models. Uh, it's pretty exciting, you know. Like it, it is a uh, um, the. Uh, I, I think that we're about to, you know, get into a place where you can show something to your computer. You know, you can upload some pictures and, and then it figures out what it is and. You can talk about like like the stands that we make for our extremes. Well, I really want something here. I really want something to hold this up, or I want something to hold all these objects. And you start talking to it, and the next thing you know, you print it. <laughs> like that's what you have, and you're not even learning how to do that stuff. You're just asking for what you want um, and printing out things. You know, and I and I do think you know it's funny. I was watching um, if anyone's watched Peripheral. Um, there's this TV show. It's pretty good. Uh, called Peripheral, and I can't remember what network it's on because I can't keep track of the networks and the streaming services anymore. But it is, uh, but they have this, they're at working in a shop. One of the, the people are working at a print shop, but that print shop is just a bunch of 3D printers. It's like lots and lots and lots of 3D printers. And I was like, that's a really interesting idea of the future. And then I realized as we get into a lot of this gener- gener- this uh, AI art, there's going to be a lot of people generating things that they just need to output. you know. And um, so I think that there is probably going to be I could I could definitely see someone building a little shop in a town that has a you know a shop bot and some 3D printers and some other CNC and you can just bring your files in or email your files to it it just prints and you just come and pick it up and I think that that's going to be a really interesting um, thing the uh, um, yeah so I think that I think we're things are speeding up you know so I I would definitely pay attention to the point E I if you can afford it you know I would definitely play with. Um, uh, play with it. The first thing that I want to actually build in 3D models, see like the, the, the thing that, that that you have here is this is the, I, I put in the turbo and cabulator, which is if, if anyone knows the, the, the joke. I there. can't believe you went with that. That was so I, much I, fun. So, so I, I put in turbo and cabulator and what I, and this is one of, one of the many versions that popped out. 
What's interesting when we look at that is that it is, um, for the turbo encabulator, it, it is uh, very much thinking in 3D. I mean, it's figuring out the shading, it's figuring out where it is. It's, you know, so it's already figured out what that surface looks like. It's a matter of turning that surface into, um, you know, something that, you know, that makes sense. I mean, because, you, you know, and, and that's going to be the interesting part is when we start to actually be able to export these out as 3D scenes. Any good, Courtney? Does it have a base plate of uh, marvelated, uh, I mean, tabulated marzal vein that uh, well, it's it, it, si side fumbling in control? Yeah, marvelated. yeah. It's the side fumbling that's still that's still kind of a problem, and it's it's on the backside there. And and really, what I what I didn't get added to here is the stator. The stator is is really important to this, and I and I didn't really ask for that. So so I'm gonna I'm gonna get one with a stator soon. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Tom. And the prefabulated amulites. Yep, exactly. I haven't. I didn't put amulite. Yeah, that's yes. the one. Exactly. So we can put that in. I we did do like an. We'll probably do this more often. We did do like an hour in after hours where we just started calling out things and, and rendering them, and we probably do that in the future too. Uh, next question. And if you're concerned, Chad Lafarge just noted that Peripheral is on Amazon Prime. Uh, Douglas Carmichael has our next question. Have any of you had the experience of transitioning from low and or middle level equipment, and he notes Blackmagic Design and Allen and Heath and so forth, to higher end equipment, Ross, Grass Valley, Digico? Go ahead, Nigel. So, no, I haven't, but I have gone from the sort of the home amateur to what I would class the semi-professional. And my advice to everybody is do one thing at a time. <laughs> because each step is a factorial level of complexity. And when you, we all know when you change two things, you have to change two things. Go ahead, Ron. Uh, Chris. That's really good advice, Nigel. Uh, you know, our friend uh, Doug Ferguson uh, recently uh, threw up his hands and absolutely 100% gave up on all things new tech. And he spent uh, a lot of time uh, in the last several months upgrading his. Uh, sports truck um that he does you know regional sports and other stuff as well to a ross switcher which meant he had to get a new graphics package i think and then he also had to get a new slow-mo uh system uh and yes one thing at a time pay for training uh if you need to if you need to go up a level sometimes if you have to hit the ground running pay for the training that it takes to to get to the place and hopefully you can find somebody who will train you specifically not just throw a class at you but say look here's the five things i need to be able to do can you walk me through how to do it um it's okay to ask for help good courtney yeah one thing you may find is that uh on pro equipment uh is less forgiving than the the amateur equipment is you know like the black magic has uh of frame rate synchronization on each input, whereas a lot of uh, Ross switchers expect everything to be locked to a house sync, so you need external reference yeah. generator. And uh, you know, you might look at getting something like the Terranex Minis, which make uh, conversion from uh, uh, one type to another type, or of course, our old friend the MDHX. It'll convert from um, HDMI to SDI, and it will frame rate convert, uh, and you can genlock as well, I think, with the many, but you can with the Terranex definitely uh, can convert to a form that the higher-end equipment will accept. And if you genlock everything together, a lot of times the higher-end equipment will be a lot happier. Next question. Next one comes from Brian Duck in Plymouth, Michigan, looks like. I'm using the ATEM Mini Pro and changing from HDMI monitor to a computer monitor. The output has color shifted to pink. Is there any setting or hardware solution for the monitor output from the ATEM Mini? 
that is um it, so, somewhere in there it is a, it is it thinks one one thinks it's yuv and the other thinks it's rgb and when you get when you swap those when an rgb hits a yuv or a yuv hits an ruv you either get pink or green <laughs> so so those are the um those are the two that you'll see there so you're having a um a uh um a mix and match problem there so um so anyway so that's that's the issue that you're having there so you need to look at your probably your i don't think you can change it in the a10 but you may be able to change it in your um, in your monitor settings about what it's expecting. Next question. Next one comes from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. He says, has anyone tried the Zoom countdown in the new update? Just saw it in the release notes. I don't think we've tried it yet. We should, we should definitely take a look at it. I have to admit that I'm not a big fan of generalized countdown clocks. Like I really feel like they, you know, we have one that's kind of the one that we use for a variety of reasons. Uh, but uh, but I, I really like to customize them to what we're trying to do. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next, and this time he asks, what makes a broadcast audio console like a CalRec or an a, uh, LAWO unique versus the live sound or studio console? Go ahead, George. Um, oh, so many things. Um, but in my limit, kind of limited experience with radio, I'm assuming you mean radio broadcast. I don't know if you mean video or radio. Oh, those are mostly used in broadcast. I mean, like video broadcast. CalRecs are pretty... Uh, got gotcha, you, got gotcha. you. Yeah, and I pretty, can't speak to that. I'm more and know more about the radio broadcast boards. Yeah. You go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, groups mixing, uh, mix minus things like that are specific to broadcast, and Calric and Lalo would do that. Yeah. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Dave Chambers in Glasgow, Scotland. Has anyone in the panel signed up for the business Starlink account with the bigger antenna and the QoS? Is the huge price hike justified for backing up live streaming? I really want to, but the monthly price is really high. <laughs> I was just like, okay, I don't know if I can do that. So I think it's like 500 bucks a month. So, um, so yeah, that's a, that's a real commitment. I'd have to be using it all the time. Next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. Is there a painless way to add an embedded web Zoom client to a website, or are we looking at needing to install the web meeting SDK? Adding embedded, I, I think that the, yeah, I, yeah, go ahead, Jason. Um, not really. I mean, yeah, not I really. There are the some web. creative workarounds, but like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, not, not, not in a repeatable way. Not if you're going to have them actually interact. If you're going to have them watch, you can embed a stream. But but if you're going to have them actually uh, interact, you'll probably need something else. So if you, if you want someone just to watch what you're doing in Zoom, you could just stream it somewhere and then put it in there. Uh, so you wouldn't need to do that. Next, and if you want them to interact, I would just kind of Zoom client or the Zoom client that's already there. Next question. Daniel London, Proctor, Minnesota, it looks like. Uh, I use iRig 2 and Google Pixel 4a 5G phone. Into I, think this my is, I think this is, should be a second hour question. Let's ah. go ahead and, you know, because it looks like it's a mixed minus question. So let's, let's go ahead and uh, move on to the next one. Make sure that that one gets addressed, though. Um, next question. Absolutely. Brett Bellew is up next from Appleton, Wisconsin. Does anyone on the panel have a favorite teleprompter app for the iPad? I'm hoping to find one that allows for remote control, preferably without a dreaded subscription, to use with a GlideGear TMP100 beam splitter. Now go ahead, Jason. I love it when nobody specifies price. Prompter people's... Uh... Prompter People actually makes an app that I think works really, really well. And it, I think their higher-end one is only about $300, but it is excellent. And uh, next question. 
Next question comes from Harshi Travidi in Daytona Beach, Florida. Are boom arms like the Rode PSA-1 able to be tightened in a specific position without weight? I can't seem to get my old boom to stay at a 90-degree angle without flying up. He's tried the screw somewhat. Good morning. These boom arms are uh, under spring-loaded tension to balance the weight. So similar to like a shock absorber in a car or something else, um, they are designed to be balanced with the weight of the microphone. So without the microphone, it is going to spring up. Um, <clears throat> I don't know that particular boom arm. Some of them do have uh, screws that you can tighten up. <clears throat> but even so, they're, um, they're not meant to keep it in a position without the weight. Go ahead, George. I have a new Rode PSA One Plus. It's the new arm here. <laughs> Just so happened to have one to test out, and um, you know it does depend a bit upon the mic. The mic you're using, the mic that is on it, is the Rode NT uh, USB Plus. Um, so it's 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 it has some weight to it. If you were to put a really lightweight mic like this little shotgun, it theoretically would float. But I think they've figured out how to tension all the knuckles on it such that. It stays put, and it's doing it very, very well. They've really put a lot of engineering into this new PSA One Plus. Everything is well made, and I, I don't know how they do it. It's internally sprung in tension, but it seems to hold its position no matter no matter where I put it. So it's all about the engineering. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. At the high end, the uh, Yellow Tech Mika. M-I-K-A is an excellent mic and allows you to torque down uh, set screws at each of those points that are critical to the weight distribution. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I haven't seen that road because it has covers on the springs, but you might pop the covers off and see. A lot of times they'll have, like the boom arm I'm using, it has dual springs on either side. Just take one of the springs off, and that'll uh, half the amount of tension on that for a lighter weight mic and see if it works. All right. So this thing doesn't come off. The cover on this arm is permanently attached, and uh, there's no external spring. It's all internally sprung. Foiled and again. <laughs> And I, I, I mostly use underslung, so, so that's, that's mostly what I, uh, what I know. All right, we're jumping, uh, changing subjects and talking about mix minus. <laughs> so mix minus is a really, really important uh, subject, and it, it's kind of like riding a bicycle, in my opinion, that once you understand it, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, mix minus. But everyone, when they get started, seems to have trouble figuring, like understanding what's actually happening. Um, and so um, I don't know if uh, one of the audio folks wants to jump in and talk about it a little bit. Um, go ahead and raise your hand if you do. Otherwise, I'll start making stuff up. Um, so the um, uh, anyway, so yeah, so there, there we go. Good, Jeff. So a mix is a combination of audio elements and a mix minus is a combination of those audio elements minus one or more of them. Um, the example I always use is... Uh, We've all been to a, a restaurant where you get to kind of pick and choose. So you think uh, Salsaritas, uh, Moe's, Chipotle. You're going in and you're going to get a taco or a burrito and you've got rice and beans and chicken and salsa and lettuce and all these ingredients. Well, the audience wants a uh, chicken burrito. The musician wants a beef taco with cheese and lettuce. So you get different combinations of all the audio sources. So a mix minus is to give to one particular presenter, audience member, whatever it is, a certain selection of those things. 
So it's just a combination of all the ingredients and a different combination for each person. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, I'll order bananas foster, hold the banana. Um, th that is, you know, that's a really good analogy, Jeff. I like that. You know, you walk into, uh, what was that the famous movie with, uh, yeah, give me a, a chicken salad sandwich and hold the bread. Um, mix minus is a form of, uh, one, one of the many forms of select, selective mixing. So um, when you have m musicians on stage, they have floor monitors in front of them, but they're not all listening to the same thing. Each musician has a different mix depending on what they need to hear. If you have a, uh, a group of people on stage for a panel discussion, you might have, uh, and, and it's a hybrid event um, where <clears throat> you may have questions or other presentations coming in from a remote location. Uh, those people on stage are generally behind the loudspeakers in the room that the audience are listening to. So you might set up a loudspeaker on the floor just in front of those people, and the only thing that they're going to be hearing is the remote presenter. So this is, you have different buses, different outputs, different mixes, and you're selecting what you want on each mix. And just to, just to jump into it specifically for how most people end up using Mix Minus, especially in virtual events. Now, the advantage of like using something like Zoom ISO is that Zoom does all the Mix Minusing for you. But when you're not doing that, you have to think about when you're bringing people in remotely or having them listen to themselves, we, we want to make sure that they are not hearing. We've talked about a lot of custom mixing and in-ear mixing, but the most important thing when people are talking and we're giving it to them, especially in a virtual event, is they don't hear themselves because their themselves is going to come back delayed. So if anybody, if I just sent you the program of this show, like if we took the program of this show and sent it back to us, the problem we would have is that we're hearing ourselves about a quarter second late. And that's really hard to think. It's hard to think when you're, when your words are coming up a quarter, you know, uh, just, just, just a little, a little bit late. late. Yeah. See, so now it's, now I'm getting us somehow I got it right back. That's exactly what happened. Um, anyway, so, um, so that <laughs> I'm messing with you, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. Please don't. <laughs> So, so anyway, so, so anyway, so the um, it's hard for me to keep my my uh, my thought process. And so um, so anyway, the the thing that 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 I just want to kind of clarify for the basic mix minus in it because I think we will keep on talking about advanced mix minus as well is you have a program bus and that program bus everybody's going into. So everybody is going into this program bus, but you can't send that program bus back to the you know back to everyone or they'll all hear themselves. Each person has to hear the program minus themselves. And so what will happen is, is that if I create a bus for George that's here and let's say George's, this is George's his file, I'm going to create another bus. This is an aux bus because typically we're using aux buses to do this. So we're using additional buses that each person is getting a different return back to them. And so basically if George is, th if this is George's bus, I'm giving George every output except his, except him. So that's the mix that's the mix of the program minus George. And, and Courtney, say this is Courtney, will get a different bus. And that bus will be everyone except for Courtney. And so every person that you add into that is the, is the entire program minus the person who is contributing that channel. So the thing is, is that, you know, so you're basically, and what you're doing is you're taking that into every every submix and you're just taking that one slider and moving it down or if you're on an analog when we did it with analog boards you just turn that one channel down for the person coming in and so you're you keep on building this this gets very complicated if you have six or eight people and if you're doing something like 
we use uh, studio technologies for comms, and sometimes we'll use something like an X32 for suddenly you're building all these mixed minuses for everybody. It turns into a kind of a a, a bit of a mess. So um, so anyway, but that's what the thing to always I think that that's what people sometimes have a hard time getting ahead, their head around. It's just the person, and then in the submix that's being sent back to that person, um, it is a uh, it is the the entire mix minus themselves, and that's why we call it mix minus. Go ahead, George. Yeah, I mean the concept of it is really well illustrated. Thanks, Alex. That was awesome. Um, the 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 challenge is actually knowing how to do it in your specific setup in your specific yeah. system, right? So, like in my particular system, I'm using today. I'm using something called the Revelator IO24, and it has a console that looks like this. And so what it does is it has a main mix, which is what I want to have sent to my speakers. It has a stream mix A, which is what I'm sending to all of you, right? If I break that mix minus in stream mix A and send back what's being sent to me, then that's what happens. I just sent Alex back to himself while he was talking. <laughs> And he was hearing himself, which was driving him nuts, right? And that's very critical to get right. And I, 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 once you learn your interface, like to me, this is a logical interface that kind of makes sense. So if I can wrap my brain around stream mix A is what goes out to the world, I can know that I need to mute what comes back from that world. Now I have it labeled as Zoom right now, which is mostly what comes back. Um, but that then I can set up a mute for just that one thing, so it doesn't end up in the mix. And then I also have a mix that's specifically for my own headphones. That's, in this case, Stream Mix B. Um, and so having those different mixes give me complete control over what I want. And with this interface, which I have running on an iPad as well, I can quickly touch and switch between them. But yeah, it, there's a learning curve because you have to understand how your own individual equipment handles these things because they all do it a little bit differently. Hey, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I totally agree on that. So uh, I come from the, you know, from a music background that, and then of course, uh, doing the podcasting, the early podcasting where we didn't have a lot of cool little gear, uh, uh, hardware or video. It was, it was putting older mixers, analog mixers into the computer. So mix minus was a little bit more tough. And, and you remember the days of the Google Hangouts trying to, to do that, but keep in mind with Zoom, technically this is all mixed minus for all of our channels. So I don't hear myself unless I have a piece of hardware, like for instance, this Shure MV7. If I plugged in the headphone jack, I'd be hearing myself as I was talking. But in this case, I'm not hearing myself as, as I'm going along, which is great. Now, back in the podcasting days, you know, you'd get, like I said, the analog stuff. So I'd have something like this. This is the Lesis Multi Mix 8, which was a very popular podcast uh, mixing console, you would bring in the audio from, uh, from either that one computer or a separate computer. And then in this case, you'd have two channels to mix minus on it. And that's the left channel and the right channel. It only works if you have something that's at least two channels and that could be stereo. But if it was mono, it, it wouldn't work from there. Uh, also, I don't know if you guys remember this, but the whole uh, Mac, uh, the Mac, uh, not the Mac Mini, but the Mac uh, iMac. Excuse me. That was that was a big thing for uh, bringing in a mix minus audio. Was this U control from Behringer? Because you could actually plug in two of them, and you'd have four channels of audio coming in and going out to the different people. When I think the Skype source that uh, 
that Leo built had the U control on there. And then uh, re more recent, I actually the last few years, I've been using the QSC Touch Mix because it comes with eight auxiliary channels out, and you use them just like monitors, like uh, like uh, um, like uh, like was said earlier. So basically, on the front, you see you'll see the aux one, aux two, aux three, aux four, aux five. That's where you bring it in, and then uh, and then you take that out. You can take them out to other computers, or you can take them out to the same computer if you have that set up in a virtual environment, and you can really uh, get some uh, really good uh, minus sounds. But also remember that that echo cancellation, because that's how we did a lot of mm -hmm. the uh, Google Hangouts was because of the because uh, it had its echo cancellation because you couldn't separate the audio. That was the tough thing, but and every now and then they heard little squel squelches mm -hmm. coming from there as as they fed back, but it was very few and far between. So those were some very basic ways to do uh, quick mix minuses. And I think that An Andy has a little bit of a demo for us. Andy, do you have something to show that? I, I do, and the, the only other thing I wanted to add to this part of the conversation is is that sometimes you'll have to explain a mix minus to someone because you're on the receiving end of it, and I always tell them it's the everything but themselves mix. In other right. words, um, don't send don't send me back to you. <laughs> so it's the everything but right. those guys. All right. Um, yeah. Do you want to get into this demo right now? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Let me just switch my camera. And again, as we as we talk for the producers out there, if you've got other questions about this, and, and go ahead and start throwing them in as we're talking, um, because uh, we'll, we'll 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 go ahead and keep on working on the demo here. Go ahead. Go ahead, Andy. Great. So yeah, Marty. Marty's going to chime in on this too. Uh, and do you have original sound on? I do have Good. original sound on. Thank you for, but thank you for checking. Yes. So uh, what we got here is a Behringer X32 producer. I didn't splurge for the one with the scribble strips, so I put tape on here and labeled everything. Um, our use case is. We are in a ballroom doing a hybrid event. So we have live mics and other sources in the room. So you got a few mics here. I'm gonna fake this obviously, cause I'm not in a ballroom. Uh, and here's video playback. Let's say you have to display some sound from your video sources. Um, and here's my Zoom. So we're gonna start with one Zoom, one Zoom source. Let's say you have a remote presenter, can't be there, but you wanna bring them into your meeting. So that's this fader right here. That's how we hear the remote presenter. Um, on this side of the console are my mix minus buses or auxiliaries or whatever you call them on your board. Um, and by the way, this could just as easily be an analog board like Jeffrey was showing earlier. It just happens to be this is a digital board here. So right now you'll see my mic is coming in on this channel one. I have another mic in the room that's being gated at the moment, but um, that's me. And I'm going out here. Uh, that's how you guys are hearing me. So that's, that is my mix minus there. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to switch this console to sends on fader mode. Now all that is for, for the folks who might not be familiar with that is these faders are now going to become the aux sends. It's just something that digital consoles, most of them are able to do. So to do that, I'm going to hit that. I'm going to select this mix. Now, the faders are showing what I'm sending to this mix right here, to, the, to our mix minus. So I'm sending all my mics, that would be me, and including me, my video playback, 
but I'm not sending the zoom back to itself. And I'll show you, we'll, we'll break this for a second. Now you should hear some echo. I don't, um, if you guys talk, talk, talk to, to you, you now you hear echo. echo. And so you're hearing yourself back, correct? Yes, yes, yes. absolutely. All right, so we'll kill that. So that's basically a mix minus right there. Um, and uh, hey, Marty, let's, uh, let's, why don't you tell me to, uh, we'll do this thing we did earlier where we have multiple Zoom rooms and they need to hear each other without echo. So these would be individual Zoom rooms coming into our meeting where you had, let's say you had three remote presenters for the sake of argument. Um, and right, so let's go back to the main layer. So cancel sends on fader. So now we have three remote people coming in. They could be on Zoom rooms. They could be on Ninja. They could be on NDI remote. So let's bring up all three so we can hear them. Now, we don't have them, but so this is a, a virtual demo. So we will hear all three of those. Now we'll go into sends on faders, and we'll look at room one, which is what we're looking at right now. Um, so right now, they're hearing all of the inputs except for Zoom, and we showed that if we bring up Zoom 1 right now, it, it will echo. So we don't want to do that, but we do want to allow people to hear rooms 2 and 3, so let's bring those up, okay? And I also I want to mention uh, and notice right now that all of the faders are at zero. They're all exactly the same at zero because these are, a, um, these are being sent to the bus post-fader. Okay, and we'll get into that in a bit. I just wanted to mention that. So right now, Zoom Room 1 is hearing all of the inputs plus Zoom Rooms 2 and 3. Now let's look at what uh, we're going to send to Zoom Room 2. Okay. Now, what does 2 want to hear? They want to hear 1 and 3 and not 2 because that's themselves. And now we'll go over to uh, Zoom Room 3. And they want to hear one and two, but not three, right? So now we've set up three different feeds for three different remote presenters. Each presenter can hear everybody else, including the other presenters, and not themselves. And it'll, so look, like, it'll look like this. Here's one, two, three. Mix minus, everybody. It's magic. Okay. Any questions? Well, we'll jump into the questions. If you have questions, go ahead and uh, post them up there. Jason, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I did. Um, I figured, like, you know, I'm going to take the console out of it and, like, instead try this with graphics. So, like, you know, first thing you need to know about a monitor um, or about a mix minus is what a full mix is or a monitor mix, right? So you've got three different or four different microphones, and they're all coming through speakers. And, you know, you might end up with, I want more me on my on my headphones, but um, when you get to a mix minus, what you actually end up with is kind of the backwards of this, which is green is, it really should be called mix minus source. So mix minus green is green, um, is everything but green in its own combination. Same thing with yellow, same thing with pink, same thing with blue. It's, um, it's just everything but the source that is feeding it. And, uh, and sorry, I got on the wrong page here. Um, uh, go ahead, Jeff. 
It's funny. I, I think we're almost going completely backwards of maybe perhaps what we should have done. Uh, I had that's a great graphic. Um, I had this one that's even more simplistic, and and to me, I found mix minus as technical as you are to be one of those things like uh, recursive function programming. You don't get it until you get it, and and I think this is perhaps the uh, the original mix minus of just simply uh, a phone caller uh, and that you're patching in and you don't. Want want uh the phone caller to hear themselves and and we we could have done all these graphics and demos backwards for the folks that haven't wrapped their head around it just yet and go ahead courtney sorry we came out screen there my mic moved uh one complication in this is if the person who is sending the the uh, their microphone into the Zoom meeting wants to hear side tone. They won't be hearing it from the Zoom meeting itself, so they have to do that on the um, on their local mixer before they send it to the person who's mixing the Zoom meeting. So if they want to hear themselves uh, in their ear, uh, they're going to have to do that, uh, and it should not affect the mix minus because that's happening downstream from where they are. And uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I'd like to say that this is the reason why audio is hard. Um, it, it's, the, there is a sort of a lost art of what I call, you know, the broadcast audio engineer. It's not simple. It's if you're a guy or a girl or a woman, whatever, who goes into a bar and mixes a band, you know, like more me, you know, little kick drum, little guitar, couple of singers, whatever. That's one kind of audio engineer. You pick that person and put them in charge of mixing audio for a, a broadcast, they're going to miserably fail. And I have much respect for broadcast audio engineers. It is a lost art. It is something that is dying. And part of it happens because of the proliferation of uh, accessible gear that makes people think they're a lot more qualified than they actually are. So if you're in a situation where you're having problems, I would highly recommend you consider hiring a professional if and, you can still find one. And find, you got to find places that you can do it yourself. <laughs> like you can, you got to find places that you can places where you it. can fail. Yeah. You got to find places. And that's why, you know, we're going to do more and more things within office hours that let people play with the stuff. And you should jump into those teams and watch them jump into the teams and do them jump into the, you know, have little kits at home, do, do these things. The way you get good at it is to do it. You, you cannot take a class or read a book and expect to be able to go do a show. You know, it, it is, you know, the most dangerous thing in production is theoretical knowledge. Like just, just, it is, it is lethal. Like, you know, just lethal of, of, I read something on the internet or I talked to someone and now I know how to do it. You don't know how to do it until you've done it at least a hundred times. Like a hundred times is when you start to understand how it works. A thousand times is when you start to know what you're doing. And 10,000 times is when I can actually <laughs> hire you for a high level event. So, so, you know, so the, so the, um, so you just really need to think about how do you get reps in um, to figure this out and where can you fail? Go ahead, George. And there's also jargon and vernacular that's unique to the different audio worlds in which we work. Because Courtney said a minute ago, side tone. I don't think most folks my, uh, in my industry and others that are doing, will know what that is. But what he's describing in side tone is 
your low latency or low latency monitoring, which is Hopefully literally zero. <laughs> yeah, which is a signal coming from your mic that's going through your own mixer and feeding back to your own headphones, right? Without any delay at all, right? That's that's the side tone Courtney's describing. Yeah, but this is just I I came from uh, I did a little bit of everything, and then I I came from I did radio, I did uh, remote recording, I did studio engineering, I did live sound. Then I moved to Hollywood. And just found a rec.audio.music.production or movie.production.sound yeah. and started learning production mixing and found out it's a whole different thing, right? right. So every industry has its its thing. So yeah, that's a great point. And, and again, I mean, I, I you just can't I can't say it enough because the the way we learn is that we watch, we ask questions, we do, and then we just repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat that, you know. And you got to find places to do all of those things. We're trying to provide some of the watch and some of the, the a little bit of all of those things, you know, as you go through it, but you got to find it somewhere in your life um, or you're not going to get good at these things. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, George, you, you, you brought up something that was really, you know, curious to me and interesting is when you work with an international broadcast crew, like on an Olympics and you're working with people from all over the world and you find out that, you know, somebody else in another country would call the video switcher something different. They call it a vision mixer. You know, they call it a mixer rather than a switcher. And, you know, microphones and cables and an AC extension cord, we call a stinger, right, in some parts of the industry. So, yeah, so vernacular is different. And um, different parts of the industry, even within the same country. So uh, whether you're doing music mixing, uh, film production, broadcast mixing, recording studios, yeah, they're, uh, the concepts are all very pretty much the same when you get down to it, but how you apply them is very different. Um, so this is the first in a series of shows that we're going to be doing uh, about live sound, um, uh, particularly hybrid events. So we're going to be doing some demonstrations, some setups. We're going to be showing um, how we do things, you know, in a in a live environment. So keep tuned for that. Yeah, go and, ahead, Doug. Yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. Uh, one uh, one more thing I put in into the Makana, uh, a great reference uh, book is the Sound Reinforcement Handbook by Gary Davis. I grew up on that book. It's a great thing. Mix Minus, by the way, a little bit of history. It actually came from the radio industry. That's that's what they called uh, when callers came in and they wanted to uh, make sure that they didn't uh, feedback on on their audio. So that's that's where that came from. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. First one comes from James Fossilene in Minneapolis, and he says, my podcaster mixer has mix minus on one input. It's meant for a phone, so it's 3.5 millimeters. Should I use it for anything else or just for the mix minus? Go ahead, George. You can use it for whatever you want, as long as it's a clean, good-sounding input and it doesn't add noise or distortion and you have the gain staging right, so the output of the device that you're connecting into that input or isn't overdriving it or underdriving it. As long as all that's good, um, yeah, use that input for any other auxiliary source you want to use. You don't have to use it specifically for mix minus. It just happens to be that that particular connection has combined to the input also an output, and that output does not include that input. I hope that's clear. <laughs> yeah, that particular jack is both an input and an output. Uh, specifically designed to be used with with a phone. Um, I don't know where that input comes up, whether it comes up on a fader or not. Um, 
but uh, if it if it does and you can you can figure out how to wire that particular connector just for an input you you could use it as a as a different input i have an adapter that i want to show that just came up this is this is so this is a trrs adapter that splits out to an individual input and an output so you could plug that into that jack on your roadcaster pro or whatever that mixer is that you happen to be using and then get the individual ins and outs to then use it. It's a little makes it more flexible in case you're not plugging into a TRRS equipped device. Um, all the Macs have a TRRS connector. So really the built-in sound card, quote unquote, of a Mac can become another input output source. So you could have, for example, Zoom, it's mic and speaker assignment set to built-in sound and run that into your console. And now that becomes your phone patch. Another radio term. Next, next question. Next one comes from Jeff Francis in Columbia, South Carolina, here on the panel. What's the difference between pre-fade and post-fade sends, and when do you choose each? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, on each input channel, you usually have gain staging. In other words, you'll have an input uh, trim knob that sets your input gain before you get to the mixer, which is the slider down at the bottom. And uh, that's called the fader. The main slider is usually called the fader. Pre-fade and post-fade means that uh, the signal that you're sending, uh, if it's pre-fader, um, it, uh, the fader level down below doesn't affect your send level. Only the trim pot will affect your send level. Post-fader the the slide pot at the bottom, the main main fader for that channel, will affect the output level that you're sending to whatever bus you're assigning it to. So pre-fade or post-fade determines whether the fader itself determines the level that's going downstream. Pre-fade, only the trim control usually affects the level um, down you're sending downstream. And one of the places that we use that is for records. So when we send a bunch of stuff out on record, we may want to record all those channels pre-fade. So no matter what we're doing, we don't, we don't, we don't lose anything. And then post-fade is for the show. Go ahead, George. Yeah, that's one great example. Um, another one is uh, when we do live sound, we want to make mixes for the monitors on stage. We don't want our main faders that we would control the sound coming back to us from the main system to affect what's going to those all those individual monitor wedges or in-ear monitors up on stage. So we make all of those mixes on pre-faders. Um, it makes it a lot more challenging for the audio engineer to manage everything. Um, and just if something starts feeding back, you can't just mash the mute button on that channel on the mixer and kill it because, <laughs> well, it just doesn't because, it, because it's pre-fader. Then now the mute or the fader itself will not affect the signal going out to all those other places. Um, but that's another way that it's used in context. Yeah, one of the places in that in that context that I've seen work really well is having an audio engineer with an iPad, you know, when they when they when offer the mixers that do that. And they're sitting on stage talking to the artist, sitting there just move, just changing their fade, you know, right there, just talking to them. Oh, give me a little bit more of the guitar, give me a little bit more of this. Um, and it's just a really effective way to kind of mix that in and dial it in right for them in real time. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. We, we call that the more me knob. Um, <laughs> it, according from what George said, one of the things that can be a problem with this is what's called stage wash. So let's say I have, um, uh, I don't know, a keyboard player and he's got a big rig and he's got a couple of feeds coming to front of house and I have his monitor mix set as a uh, prefade. So 
he's asked me for a level. I'm going to mix him in the house so the house sounds good. But if he's on wedges and there's a lot of noise on the stage, even though in the house it doesn't feel appropriate to have that much keyboard, that stage wash can be a problem. Um, if he's on ears, it doesn't matter. You want it at, at you know 100 dB in your ears all night long, that's fine. I don't care. Stage wash, though, is when the feed that's on the stage is washing out into the audience when I don't want it there. And that's one time where pre-fade, post-fade can help. If that monitor wedge, like let's say a bunch of vocal mics were post-fader, if I were to dip some mics after the end of a solo or something, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, pull it down in the monitor mix as well. But that can enter other problems. The bottom line is you have the choice of pre-fader and post-fader and whether it's music, a broadcast, or as Alex mentioned, a record situation, um, there's a million uh, examples of where you want and don't want it. It's just important to know what it does and how to use it. I have to admit, when people say wedges versus in-ears, I, I consider artists technical or non-technical. So wedges to me mean non-technical artists and, and in-ears mean technical artists. You know, like when, 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 we, when we're working on those in concerts, because it's just, it's just like, okay. Like as soon as someone says they want wedges, I make a whole bunch of assumptions about, about what, what they're able to understand about what I'm going to talk about. Um, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, so uh, just to bring this back to Mix Minus um, and using pre-post. Um, so I've done a bunch of events where well, I'll get to that in a second. Typically, you know, when I'm mixing, if my fader's up, I know it's going to program and it's going out to the show. When that fader is down, it's not going to those places. The one instance where the pre-fader comes in handy is if you have a bunch of presenters in their own Zoom rooms, like the use case we were showing, and you want to allow them to talk to each other before they actually go to program or the show. If they're all in pre-fader, they can talk to each other and not interrupt your show. Um, and there actually was a use case with this, with someone on this very panel who made this request. He wanted uh, those people to be able to talk to themselves, and with a few pushes of the button in a very quick setting, like they could talk up till one minute before air or whatever, push those buttons, now they're post-fader. And it's a really useful feature, because a lot of times you want your panelists to be able to communicate to each other and, and all of that before the show, and then when you get into show, you, you don't want them to, uh, you, you want to have them in post fader just uh, so you know that they are yep. actually going to air. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, uh, that's a good uh, use case there, Andrew. Anything that requires the audio at any time to be heard is pre fader, uh, regardless of where the, uh, the fader position is set. So, like you say, it could be monitoring. Uh, again, getting to the radio analogy, we would use a pre fader listen scenario when we wanted to cue a record or cue some audio up uh, without putting it out over the air. We used to have an overpress cue button that would do that, but in some boards, uh, you could just put it into an audition. But if it was pre fader, you could hear it without having to turn the volume up and risk putting it into program. Good, Marty. Yeah, so I like graphics, right? So to, to uh, illustrate, <clears throat> we have, uh, uh, this is a post fader. So on the left, we have a microphone in the input channel. And then uh, that input channel feeds the uh, bus send 
faders, right? And then the bus send faders feed the bus masters and, and along with all of the other input channels. And so anything, any changes to the uh, channel fader will affect uh, the outputs to all of the buses. Now, if we look at pre-fader, um, this is a bit of a different setup. The microphone will go to the channel fader, and that goes out to um, a bus, or the mains, rather. But um, in pre-fader, the, the microphones will feed into the bus send levels directly, bypassing the channel fader. And then they will feed into the bus masters. And so anything that happens on the channel fader here will not affect the level going to the buses, and that's pre-fader. Yeah, go Jeff. So when I think pre-post, I think pre-independent and post-dependent. So post-fader sends are dependent on where the fader level is. Um, oftentimes, especially in configurable digital consoles, the mute function on a channel can either mute only things that are post-fader or mute things everywhere. Personally, I prefer muting everywhere because if I push the mute button on a particular channel, I don't want it to be heard anywhere. Uh, but that is often something that's uh, very user-dependent and situation-dependent. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, another thing uh, Mitch brought it up is uh, PFL. You'll see that label on a lot of mixers, which is pre-fade listen. And that's great for troubleshooting. It lets you hit a button and and hear what's going on in that channel, regardless of what level the the uh, the mixer is mixed at. And on the Rodecaster Pro, which I'm using here, uh, you see these little green buttons down there. That's a solo button, which is a combination of pre-fade listen for that channel, and it uh, cuts out all the other channels. So it solos that channel and sets the pre-fade listen on. So it lets you hear uh, then everything that's coming through that channel, regardless of the fader position, and it mutes all the other channels as you hit that solo button. So it's a combination pre-fade listen and solo. Next question. Daniel Lund is up next from Proctor, Minnesota. I use iRig 2 and Google Pixel 4a 5G phones into my mixer to create a mix minus. My question is setting levels. Should I have my phone volume all the way down and adjust the gain on the mixer and on the iRig 2, or should I do it the other way around? I can't seem to get it right. Go, George. Yeah, I mean, the question is, are we talking about setting the level it's feeding into your phone, or are we setting the level it's coming out of the phone into the mixer, right? The iRig does have its own little gain dial, so you can adjust how, how much level is coming out of the phone into the iRig, but the signal coming out of the iRig is adjusted from the phone, right? So if that's what you're talking about, um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't think there's any science to this. I think you have to just uh, put your input gain on your mixer at a sort of a, a neutral position. If it has a literally a little U or anything indicating what unity gain is, which is about the most neutral gain setting, and then start turning up your phone until you get a level that sounds good and looks good on the meter, that might be the only way to go about it. You good, Marty? Yeah, that's a good practice to use. Uh, so, what we're what, the question really goes to the heart of what gain staging is. You know, it's 
um, from the very first uh, source of the of the audio, what is the level going into the next stage and the next stage of the audio chain? And uh, you don't want to start with a very low level because then you have to amplify it in the next stage to get it up to a good level to be usable. And when you do that, you're adding noise from that amplification. So you want to have start out with a good, strong level that is um, not clipping, not so strong that it's clipping, but not so low that it's going to add noise. So you want to have a good, healthy level going into the mixer. Um, or into the iRig, and then the iRig has a volume control that adjusts its output that goes to the mixer. So you want to get them all lined up so that they're all, as George said, at unity gain, which is optimum uh, level balance between clipping and a noise floor. Okay, the wrong button. There you go, Jeff. So since you're going into the iRig, which is designed to accept signals from the phone, I would turn the volume on the phone all the way up because the iRig should be designed to receive the maximum level that the phone could produce. Of course, listen for clipping, but there's your starting point. Go ahead, Jeff. As someone who's played around with this stuff a lot, especially before I understood electronics, I would just randomly plug stuff into other stuff to see what would happen. Um, I've found roughly an 80% to be at least a good starting point, uh, too low and you're going to strain everything and you're going to get noise, uh, like was mentioned to amplify it, but I'm not sure a hundred percent is good either. Cause you're probably going to get noise if you're pushing whatever that, de especially the, depending on the quality of the device or phone and its audio components, you're probably going to get noise at a hundred percent. So I would at least start with 80% and and then kind of try and fine-tune it and dial it in from there. Um, I don't know if, by the way, if you can automate this with routines on uh, Android. I actually, once I found that level for my iPhone, uh, again, I use automation and shortcuts, and it's automatically triggered from a focus that is started from my Mac, and the phone then automatically sets itself at the fixed volume that I've determined works well for me. Next question. Jason Robertson, Sarasota, Florida is up next. He says, I just got a Rodecaster Pro 2. Any advice for setting up mix minus on this system? Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, the Rodecaster Pro 2 is really nice for mix minus. It has a routing feature inside of the settings and multiple outputs. So you can actually do the routing within uh, your primary source, your secondary source. Uh, keep in mind that if you are, because it's got two USB sources. So if you've got one going to one computer to send back to the person and another one going to a computer to maybe record the, uh, the stems or something like that, then make sure that you're not mix minusing the wrong thing. Otherwise, your recording is going to have be missing some audio. All right, next question. Next one comes to us from Art Aldrich in New York City, uh, or New York at least. Alex mentioned Zoom ISO does auto mix minus. Please expand on this. Uh, go ahead, Chris. The highest level, this is, this is really interesting. So when things become uh, democratized or simplified, this is why we have a hard time, as I mentioned earlier, this is why we have a hard time finding broadcast audio engineers who really understand this stuff. Because when something is done automatically, we think it's simple. We think it's easy. Um, and it's, and it's not, it's not, it's, I mean, look at, look at, um, Andrew's 
uh, demo from earlier, if you thought, oh, I'm just going to learn some stuff about Mixed Minus, all of a sudden he's showing you this whole giant console with all these ins and outs and gazintas and gazautas and stuff. It, it takes a lot of gear to do it right. And imagine if, imagine if you had to set up, and, and I know a lot of you guys have, uh, Mixed Minus for the 16 or 20 people or whatever it is that's in this meeting. Without Zoom doing the automatic mix minus for us, you would have to buy a mixer that had 20 outputs or, or more. And I've always said that when buying consoles, outputs are almost always more important than inputs. Go ahead, Andrew. Well, I just wanted to say to Chris, uh, the cabal of audio engineers, we've all actually come together to make this seem a lot harder than it is. <laughs> So this is working perfectly. We did um, that really well, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Um, so the, the only thing I wanted to expand on this is that I actually don't know what Zoom ISO is doing, but I, I thought this was a good opportunity to explain the difference between a mix minus and echo cancellation. Because Zoom does use echo cancellation, and certainly in vanilla Zoom. I'm not sure about Zoom ISO. So the difference between mix minus and echo cancellation, you saw what mix minus is. Echo cancellation actually is a circuit that needs to hear both ends of the conversation. And it automatically goes, oh, you're talking, I'll turn that other guy off. <laughs> and then it, it just flip-flops and keeps doing that. And so Zoom's API, they have a very sophisticated way of doing that. It works very, very well, as we can all see. Um, but that is different in, than a mix-minus mix in, the, in the way we're talking about mix-minuses here. Go ahead, Bill. I just wanted to say also, this has gotten more complex as this equipment has gotten more sophisticated. When I was starting out, you had a button on a mixer and, you know, you hit the mute button. It was that channel and that's all it did. And it never did anything else. Nowadays, as we saw from Andy's description, you know, you can hit one mode button on the mixer and everything changes. And a button that did one thing before now does something subtly different than it does in the other mode. And so it is getting more and more complex. So you really do have to put your hours in if you want to do this kind of work and learn yep. the subtleties. And Courtney. Yeah. And Andy brought up an important part. If you're using uh, echo cancellation and zoom under the settings there, and you're using original sound off, I mean, original sound on, uh, you may want to, and you're using headphones, you may want to make sure that this echo cancellation is not checked because if you're using headphones, then it won't need to uh, do its uh, simplex switching back and forth, and you'll be able to have people talk over each other without interrupting each other. So if you have headphones in and you don't have any open speakers and you're using uh, original sound is on, uncheck that box. Yeah. And, and we just want to make separate, you know, mix minus is not a Echo cancellation. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. So, so, and some people are, have been using mix minus as an echo cancel or echo cancellation as mix minus, which is a horrible idea. Like, like we, we see people, oh, I just turned the echo cancellation up. I'm like, oh, let's not, let's not do that. Um, you know, and so, uh, the mix minus the 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 reflector is doing exactly what a mixer would do, which is that it just knows who's going in, who's going out. It's not using echo cancellation for that. It's just simply properly building a mix minus. Every person's getting the the aggregate of the show, except for except for them, um, you know, and it, and it knows who they are, so it can do that relatively easily. So it's it's just doing what we're what we're expecting to do there, um, but it's different. That is distinct from it being a. Um, it using echo cancellation, which is entirely different. What it's doing there is, if you have an open speaker, it here it sees the the waveform come. You know, it sees the, the the it matches the two of them up together, and then and then removes it, which re greatly reduces the quality of your audio. Um, it also um, it 
the other you know issue with it is that uh, if you delay your audio at all, those things don't match anymore, and that's why you suddenly get a huge return. Uh, go ahead, George. Yeah, I mean, you can make you can turn Zoom into an excellent podcast recording software by just simply turning off turning off the echo cancellation and forcing headphones on everybody's heads. It will do an excellent job. It'll even record audio stems of every single person in that call so that you can do a proper mix later. So that's nice. And again, Zoom ISO doesn't need to do that. It just puts out all those raw, it puts out what everybody's doing. It's not, if you fed that back in, you would have to start building mix minuses again. So, uh, but it, what Zoom ISO does is I'm just going to put out whatever I'm, whatever's coming in. What you're hearing and one of the big advantages, like building this, this large of a panel uh, separately with mix minuses, not easy. Doing it with Zoom ISO where it just outputs it, very easy. <laughs> so so the, the, that's, it does all that work for you um, and, and, and allows us to have a low latency conversation. And that's why it's so powerful. Go ahead, Andrew, Andy. Um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, touch on what Bill said earlier about the modes on the console. Uh, it actually is not, it may look a little complicated, but literally what it is, if it's the equivalent on an, all, on an analog console, you know, the way I had the fader become the send, of reaching for that aux knob. That's all it is. It's taking that knob and sticking it on the fader mm -hmm. temporarily. So I didn't want you guys to think this was really complicated if you, haven't, if you don't have a mixer that does this. That's all it's doing. It's just a way to grab the aux or the bus or the thing that is your mix minus and sticking it right in front of you. Um, but on a traditional console, it literally would be a knob above that channel. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Javier Alfaro in Mexico City. Can you explain pre-post-fader sends and when you should use each one? Go ahead, Andrew. Um, so the only time I use pre-fader is if I'm mixing monitors for a band. Uh, their monitor mixes are all pre-fader. Um, that's one instance. Two, I mentioned earlier, when you want to have some Zoom rooms talk to each other before your show or before you send them to your show or whatever, that's, that's another instance. Um, the third instance Alex had mentioned, which is, let's say you want to do raw records, an individual track of each presenter, and you have some recording system that has, you know, like Pro Tools or whatever, and you want to grab their raw audio and just send it to its own track, because later on you're going to do a lot of post-production on your event, uh, for your event. Um, everything else is post-fader. Oh, there's one other instance, but I'll get to that in a second. Every other thing I do is post-fader. So it's 95% of the time it's post-fader. Um, one other use case for pre-fader that's really useful in broadcast um, is what they call pre-fader, uh, it's a pre-fader speaker. So let's say you have an IFB system and you know, you're talking into a talent's ear and you don't have their fader up and you can't hear it because you don't want to send them to program, but you want to be able to have a conversation with them without sending them to your program to air or whatever, that pre-fader listen allows you to do that because you could have your, their mic routed to that speaker. Their fader isn't up. They're not going to your program. And, you can, and that person, the producer, the director, can have a conversation with them. That's another instance. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Javier, here's a, a practical example. I don't know if you do it, but uh, it's uh, it, it demonstrates pre and post. Let's say you have an artist singing uh, into a microphone and you want to send it to your uh, reverb. 
Um, if you have it set for post-fader, then it means that the reverb is going to track the main fader that uh, is the singer. But if for some reason you wanted an effect where the singer is fading out but the echo remained, um, you have to do pre-fader because that way the send is always going to the reverb system as you fade down the singer and all that's left is the, uh, the echo. So there's, a, there's an example where you might want to use both of them. Good, Marty. Can't hear you, Marty. Yep, and yes, and to continue with the music uh, scenario, when you have uh, when you're mixing floor monitors for musicians on stage, those uh, the mixes those musicians want to hear that mix all the time, regardless of the volume that's going to the house. They want a set mix that they know is their reference. They're going to hear the same thing throughout the entire show unless they change their own instrument volume, right? So um, their mix is set, and that's a pre-fade mix that is independent of the house. If, uh, if it was post-fade, then any changes to the house would be reflected in their, in their monitor mix, and um, that throws off their entire reference. Um, also, in um, in other settings like uh, mixing for church in a hybrid event or doing uh, a broadcast mix, every once in a while you might have an input that you want uh, at a fixed level going to that mix uh, <clears throat> that is independent of what you, what you're doing in the sanctuary. Uh, so that would be a pre-fade mix. However, the mute button is active for both mixes. So the audio level is independent going to, going out there, but the mute button on the channel fader will affect both. So you can turn the channel on and off, um, but any level changes that you make for the house wouldn't be reflected in the broadcast mix. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. And I'm going to throw one additional complication use case in here, taking off of what Marty said about like a broadcast uh, streaming for a house of worship. Oftentimes, you know, everybody two years ago, a lot of churches decided to start adding live streaming. So they picked up all their inputs and they set up an aux bus and wow, they had terrible sound because you couldn't hear things that people in the sanctuary could hear just naturally acoustically. That could be a drum set that wasn't amplified. That could be congregational singing or a choir or the organ. So they added in some house, house mics. Well, you never want microphones that are there to pick up the congregational singing to ever go through the PA system in a sanctuary because you're going to have horrendous feedback. So those could be done pre-fader and you never turn the fader up. The other option would be to let them be post-fader so you have control on the main faders for the actual blend and just de-assign their input to the main stereo program. So that's another option with auxiliary sends besides pre and post is we can actually change the assignment and we could take something out of the main program bus and have it just in one of the auxes. Next question. Next one comes from Javier Alfaro in Mexico City. How can you use VCAs on a console when doing different mix minus mixes? I go ahead, Mitchell. Now you're taking me back, Javier. Uh, VCAs are voltage-controlled amplifiers and they were used... Uh, well, very much uh, in the olden days uh, to provide a way of 
uh, attenuating or increasing the volume on a source without the audio actually going through the fader. It was an electrical uh, signal that went to the VCA that would uh, vary its uh, ability to amplify or decrease the volume. So the advantage of that is it was quieter. Um, the other advantage is uh, in the world of mix minus, um, you have an electrical signal that can be routed anywhere. You're not routing audio. You're re technically have a control signal going to various VCAs, so you can create groupings and submixes and all kinds of uh, things as long as you have that ability to control it with electrical impulses. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Mitch touched on it there. The VCAs were used primarily before we went to all digital. Uh, uh, mixers. There was a combination of an analog mixer that had voltage control amplifiers in it and a computer that would send the control voltages to the voltage control amplifiers to control the levels. So you could uh, use the computer to store presets. So you could store uh, preset values and it would send that voltage value to the VCA to set the levels. So you could set several different pre presets for, for mix minus and so on. And uh, it, you could save your setups that way. These days, they use digital signal processing to mix all the signals together rather than voltage-controlled amplifiers. So uh, using VCAs, you probably have a hybrid console that uses uh, voltage-controlled amplifiers and uh, control voltages of a control surface to then control your levels uh, not, and not mixing them digitally. Yeah, go ahead, Andy. Yeah, and, and just to piggyback on that, um, they're called DCAs, digital controlled amps, and um, their primary purpose is they become a remote control for whatever faders are assigned to them. Um, so if you bring down that DCA, for example, on all your mics, you're, it's essentially bringing all the faders of your mics down. It's, it's essentially what it's doing. Um, in this case, though, I wouldn't use it for mixed minuses, and that's a personal preference because I don't want to overcomplicate my setup. Um, I, I want to be able to see that one fader that is that mixed minus and not have a second fader that might be remote controlling it. And I'm, by the way, I've gotten into this trap before. I'd be like, I see levels. Why don't I hear anything? And it's sometimes it's because I've forgotten to turn up the DCA. So... Um, but they have their place. They absolutely have their place, and they come in handy. I just wouldn't use them on a mix minus. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Do you ever want to use compression or safety limiting on the mix minus scent of talent? Yeah, go ahead, uh, George. I would say for in-ear monitors, it's probably the norm now. I, I am a little out speaking out of school because I don't do live sound in-ear monitor mixes really anymore, but that would be really, really a good idea. And I think a lot of the in-ear monitor mixer, uh, in-ear monitor wireless packs have that built in as well to protect the talent's hearing. Yeah, go ahead, uh, uh, Marty. Yeah, in the earlier days, um, uh, I knew a lot of broadcast uh, announcers who had hearing damage because at some point or another, uh, they had feedback in their in-ear their in monitor, and boy, that really hurts. Um, so yes, uh, providing some sort of uh, uh, audio level limiting uh, going to talent is a really good idea. In fact, I would say it's even mandatory. Um, and when you're working with a hybrid event, sending to your conference software like Zoom, um, applying a certain amount of compression can uh, can even out the audio level so that you know it doesn't get too soft and it doesn't get too loud, and it's more comfortable for people to hear things at a more con constant level. Go, Jeffrey. 
especially when you're talking in virtually and somebody is doing either very boisterous, very laughing, laughing really hard, or a musician. Because uh, when, when you sing, you raise your luffs over uh, a conversation like that. So a lot of sound contouring is not, contouring is not a bad idea. Also, and keep in mind how they're listening on their end, because it might sound perfect to you, but then you send it to them and they might have a hard time hearing uh, different people. Yeah, go ahead, George. Oh, next question. I'm sorry. Jeff <laughs> sorry, Cohen. Jump yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida says, can George run us through his hack to tame the Apollo to behave with Zoom? Yeah, go we'll do it George. quick. Um, so the, the big problem with the Apollo system, uh, digital mixing system is with zoom wants to hear traditional zoom, not ISO, whatever, but traditional zoom wants to hear every single channel coming out of your interface. Right. And in the case of the Apollo systems, um, what you really do have is this long list of channels that are normally there. Right. So if I go to my default setting or whatever, um, and load that, you'll see that there are a tremendous number of channels or not, depending on the preset I'm loading. Apparently that one doesn't work. Uh, we'll load that one instead. So what happens is, is Zoom hears all the outputs from the Apollo simultaneously, and that includes the main mix or monitor mix, which is where Zoom is coming back. So Zoom, in the context of using multi-channel audio interfaces like this Apollo and others, you end up having this issue where Zoom wants to ignore the whole mix minus aspect of the way it's all set up. So the hack is you basically yank out all of the virtual wiring inside the Apollo's, what they call IO matrix, get rid of everything and just make channel one a new mix, which is should sound familiar to you now, is an aux mix. And I create an aux mix feeding exactly what I want to feed back into Zoom. Once I've done that, I can, I can break the curse of Zoom and the Apollo, uh, which have always caused issues where the, where, when the, uh, the remote listener is listening to a talent who's using an Apollo often ends up hearing a phasey doubled version of themselves or worse yet, an echo of themselves during the, the call. So if you want to know more, more about that, I've actually gotten a, a sub forum over at uadforums.com specifically for live stream and broadcast because it's a huge user base for the Apollo that was really underserved in terms of knowledge. So now, now there's a place where people can go and, and, uh, and, and get those questions answered because they're definitely unique to how Apollo and Zoom uh, interact, especially on a Mac. Next question. Yeah, I couldn't have done mine without Mickey. Thank you, Mickey. Harshid Travitti, Daytona Beach, Florida. In the newer interfaces and mixers, we find that it gets advertised as having a mix minus and Bluetooth solutions. Does this offer enough reliability with their execution at this? Jeff. I was going to let someone else address the reliability of uh, the, the mix minus itself in mixers. And, and I mean, they're going to be... Um, they're going to be fine because I assume we're talking about more prosumer like roadcasters and things like that. I mean, you know, those things are designed and do a very good job of giving just the average person who's not technical, let alone an audio engineer, but everyone's a podcaster now. So everyone needs a podcast. So you could just slap this board in front of them and they're going to get all this great functionality that they would have never been able to wrap their mind around. And it's going to work for that thing. 
the the caveat though is bluetooth and re- the words bluetooth and reliability just simply don't go together you know again for that person bluetooth makes it super easy they know how to pair bluetooth they could pair bluetooth to the roadcast or anything like that and it's probably going to work sometimes a lot of times but definitely not reliable of course for reliability for anything you want to hardwire it yeah, the I would I would definitely say that the um, Bluetooth is as reliable as Bluetooth is. <laughs> so that's that's kind of like you know it's not going to be the mixer is going to be totally reliable. It's the Bluetooth part that is going to be unreliable. Next question, Idris Hagi in Fairfax, Virginia, is up with what audio routing USB audio interface would you recommend to do mix minus? And are there any other software other than Loopback that you'd recommend for mix minus? Thanks. Good morning. So you want to look for an interface that has multiple output buses, and um, the and you also want to pay attention to how many of those inputs and outputs are available over the USB link that goes to the computer. So I've seen like some small desktop mixers that have a USB port, but the only thing that, that can go on that USB port are the master main outputs, and that's not going to be very valuable. Um, I use a, a Behringer XR18, which has 18 inputs, but six mix buses and 18 USB sends to the computer. So I can do a lot of things there. The Personas Revelator IO is a, is a really good uh, interface that has four mix buses that can all be routed to the computer. Um, and to answer a question about uh, software um, other than loopback, uh, take a look at... Uh, Audio Movers uh, from Omnibus is a a Mac-based in-computer audio routing uh, matrix. Good. Uh, Mitchell? There's another uh, use case for radio with phones. It's a a typical broadcast scenario. Um, A device that you would use in the radio area for phones is called a digital hybrid. And what that basically does, it separates out the sender and receiver audio as separate mixes on an asynchronous line. Um, That combined with a mix minus of what you're sending down the line to the uh, the listener um, is important. But it's a useful gadget, particularly if your board doesn't have a lot of uh, capabilities. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. So, uh, and of course, if you're doing any types of streaming, some of the streaming software will allow you to uh, uh, bypass loopback. But the mix minus, in that case, is is being done through the uh, through the the board that you choose. Keep in mind that if you're only just bringing back one signal, then you could just use a, a left right situation on a on a mixer. But if you're doing multiples and you don't have a board like that, maybe uh, start looking at Dante and and uh, and looking at those uh, solutions for sending out uh, separate feeds to more than, uh, what, four people. Yeah, and uh, two two that I'm playing with right now that I'm experimenting with that I haven't made any decisions about yet are Mixbus. Um, and we've, we have Harrison on before to talk about that a little bit. And the other one that I'm experimenting with that's much more like a traditional mixer is, is called Soundesk, and that comes from a, a company called Loud Lab. And it's a pretty cool little, it just looks like a mixer. <laughs> it just has it. So it's not, Mixbus is more of a DAW that can now put things online. Mix, uh, you know, Soundesk is, and it's cross-platform, I think it's cross-platform. Uh, Soundesk is Mac only, and it just looks like a mixer as it, as it goes through. And so it's um, it, it's pretty useful. Uh, and next on question. The, and on the PC voice meter potato, I tried to get that in. Oh, fruit and vegetables. Uh, such a bad naming idea. All right, next question. 
How do you tell a client? Come. How do you tell a client that you did that you were using ban- uh, something called banana or potato? <laughs> I'm sorry, but like they really should change that name. All right, next next question. I'm on the rutabaga. Does Zoom ask Douglas Carmichael still automatically create a mix minus even with original sound on? Yes, uh, the mix minus has nothing to do with the echo cancellation, <laughs> so it, it should it should never have anything to do with your echo cancellation. If you're using echo cancellation as a mix minus. Your kukaluka. Next question. Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area. It's important for viewers to understand the difference between pre and post fade buses when setting up uh, MMs. I don't know why. Please explain. Mix minus. Mix minus. minus. Thank you. Uh, would also would help to talk about managing scenes where mix minus channels shift as panels evolve. We've done a fair bit of that. Yeah. I mean, where you really have to think about, okay, I'm going to bring people in and, and every scene. So the, the mixer can hold multiple scenes. And we've used multiple scenes, obviously, for multiple events. You have multiple sessions. We also have used it even for surround, where you have a surround mix for one camera and another surround mix for another camera in, in 360 or VR. And then you hit, and as you, we actually tie the GPO of the switcher. So when you switch to that camera, it says go to the scene and it changes the orientation of the, of the mix. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole second hour on scenes. <laughs> Next question. Douglas Carmichael with our final, final one here. It looks like, what do you think of personal monitor mixes like the Alan Heath ME series? And he's got a link there for it for monitors. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. If the talent is on in-ears, I'm fine with these. If the talent is on wedges, no, because you're giving mixed control into the hands of the talent and that stage wash and potential for feedback that Andy talked about, now you're putting it in their hands and you don't have control over it. That's great. All right. Well, thanks to the panel who uh, who came up with this and put this all together and showed up here to answer your questions. Uh, we're really committed to having uh, our audio day be something that we're really digging into. And we get a couple extra people here that just, just answer your audio questions. So remember, not only for the second hour subject, Wednesdays are a good day to come for your questions to be uh, answered. So you can come for the first hour and you've got a bunch, a bunch of folks that can um, that have done a lot of audio for a long time, maybe a 50 to 100 years of, uh, of experience uh, floating around between this panel and in this area. So uh, definitely um, come on Wednesdays to ask those questions in the first hour, as well as see what we're talking about in the second hour. So uh, great work by the panelists, uh, great work by the producers, asking a lot of great questions to drive this whole thing uh, through, and uh, great work by the folks in the behind the scenes on uh, making all of this work. Um, there's a lot of people, it's not just the people that are doing the live show, but there's people like Josh who's trying to work, <laughs> work with everybody to figure out what's going to be in the second hours there's uh you know and uh, lots of organizational pieces there's people programming there's people you know doing a lot of different pieces so it's not just the live team that you see here but but a, a huge village approaching a city we're not a city with an h yet but we're approaching a small town we're going from the village to the small town that make this possible so thanks to everyone on the back end all right let's go ahead and jump into after hours i'm just here for the whispers yeah Andy Cartlidge. I think Andy Cartlidge said something in in Wakanda. You guys want to check out on the Zoom ISO and mix minus. Keep in mind. Uh, good. I think we should break the mix minus during this part so that we can have an, a nice echoey effect over our whispers. Oh, sounds, sounds like a terrible idea. Do do George can do that easy. Why is Alex so prejudiced against potatoes when he makes AI-generated vegetable soup? (laughs) (laughs) 
Point taken. Point taken. Better than Imagine my, my whisper in the style of MC Escher. Mix minus out. <laughs>